now we're on. Got it. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the uh, Wednesday, March 9, 2022 Board of Trustees meeting. Uh, Madam Clerk, roll call, please. Trustee Banerjee. Here. Trustee Bouquet. Here. Trustee Blue. I don't think so. She's not here. I'll check in with her. Trustee Chapman. Here. Trustee Esteen. Here. Trustee Fox. Here. Trustee Friedman. Here. Trustee Jensen. Here. Trustee Spondorio. Here. We have a quorum. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Clark. We'll move to um, uh, public comment. Just as a reminder, uh, this Board of Trustees welcomes public comment. All feedback and commentary should be considered a gift. Uh, notes on public comment for speakers. Number one, you need to inform the clerk of the board that you will be making a public comment. Number two, public comment can be made for any specific agenda item or for non-agendized items. If for a specific agendized item, public comment will occur right before that agendized item. If for a non-agendized item, it'll occur at the top of the meeting right here. Third, generally speaking, the time limit is up to three minutes per speaker. Uh, the time will be at the discretion of, uh, of, the, of the trustees, depending on how many comments there are. So we will reduce time as needed to keep uh, the meeting moving along. Given all that, Madam Clerk, is there any public comment? No one has reached out to me. Thank you. Um, scanning the room, I see none. Given that, let's move forward. Let's move into the session. Item A is discussion, the executive officer's report. I'd like to open up with one thing. Um, the, this board, um, one of its primary jobs is to uh, not only hire a CEO, but to uh, uh, oversee and execute, uh, oversee the execution of a strategic plan. Uh, we need to have a board retreat. Trustees, uh, it's my understanding from the clerk of the board, thank you for responding to her, that we have a unique circumstance of nine out of nine respondents for Friday, March 25th from one to five. Is that correct, Madam Clerk? That is correct. Okay, so uh, let it be known that we're going to be having a board retreat, a shortened version of one, on Friday, March 25th, Friday, March 25th from one to five. Executive officers, executive committee will be probably holding a meeting shortly uh, to uh, kind of finalize agenda for that. So that's sort of one item. The, the second item here is actually A1, it's, the, it's an article. This article is uh, written by uh, Don Berwick and anyone who knows quality literature in, in America knows him and anyone who knows me knows that I'm a little bit of a fanboy of Don Berwick because I think he's moved quality probably more than most individuals in the United States. This was a kind of a, uh, a deep musing on, on the moral determinants of health. Uh, um, and uh, it's a two-pager. It's actually a pretty dense two-pager for those of you who have read it. I'm gonna put a few uh, quotes out there and then just open this up for discussion if there's any. And uh, I'll just pick out a few uh, uh, learnings that I had. First, he opens up, in any nation short of dictatorship, some form of moral compact, implicit or explicit, should be the basis of a just society. Without a common sense of what is right, groups fracture and the fragments wander. Science and knowledge can guide action, they just don't cause action. No scientific doubt exists that mostly, circumstances outside of healthcare 
nurture or impair health. Except for a few clinical preventative services, most hospitals and doctor's offices are repair shops, trying to correct the damage of causes collectively known as social determinants of health. The power of these societal factors is enormous compared with the power of health care to counteract them. So uh, I, I chose this article because one, we're, we're, we're trying to develop our strategic plan, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, social determinants of health. It sort of goes part and parcel with, with what many of us view is, is the purpose of this organization. I thought that would be a great framework. Another, another important uh, thing is this evening, we're gonna be hearing um, from, from our homeless health center uh, led by Dr. David Francis. And I thought this is another lens to see that. Um, and so as a question, what are the social determinants of health? So uh, Sir Michael Marmo is a British thinker, author, health equity researcher, who has done this kind of health equity work for 40 years. He's uh, chaired the World Health Organization's Commission on Social Determinants of Health. And if you're interested in social determinants of health, uh, I think his work should be considered canon. So I'm, I'm just getting to know his work myself recently. And uh, uh, one thing that I took out of this article was his perspective on a summary of six social determinants of health. You guys know that I like lists. So th this is one list, it's, it's, it's not the list, but uh, there are many approaches. So Sir Michael Marmo lists these six determinants of health. First, conditions of birth and early childhood. Second, education. Third, work. Fourth, social circumstances of elders. Fifth, he groups these things as under quote, community resilience. This is a collection of elements, including transportation, safety, sense of community, and housing. And, and last, he, he quotes fairness, which, he, which, which uh, Berwick describes as effectively sufficient re redistribution of wealth and income to ensure social and economic security and basis equality. So one could argue that some of this thinking is leftist, um, but I think it's, it's, it's an important uh, point for dialogue on that. And I didn't say leftist pejoratively, I just said leftist. <laughs> um, so with that, I'll open this up for dialogue from anyone who wants to talk on this stuff. Trustee Banerjee, of course, then Trustee Friedman. Yeah, um, thanks for sharing this. And I wanted to kind of reaffirm what was said over here, but also to, um, to kind of reiterate that uh, sometimes when we say the moral determinants of health, it can it, it can seem like it's an altruistic or a noble thing to do for us as a as as we make a choice. And for those of us, the recent the February issue of Health Affairs Journal was and the entire thing was racism and health. And as this article says that irrespective of any sector that we are working in, health, education, uh, transportation, criminal justice, anywhere, without exception, um, there are vast, vast inequities that, are, uh, that, that we see and the same structural systemic issues. And so for those of us who've been in the healthcare or public health field and here for 10, 20, 30, whatever years, five years, we are complicit in 
perpetuating and keeping the status quo as much as we try to change in an incremental way, there is an obligation that we have, not just for others, but for ourselves to be doing that because there's a great interconnectedness and interdependencies of our destinies. They are entwined. And so we are doing this not for others. We are doing this for ourselves. And I think like having that frame of not doing it out of uh you know, service or pity or charity uh, towards the other or marginalized, but to do this for our own collaboration. So I think having that uh, a thing of we are complicit, we have been complicit, and we need to do better. <clears throat> Thank you, Trustee Banerjee. Trustee Friedman, then Trustee Fox. Um, I agree totally with Ken Kinney and also with your Thanks. comments, Taft. Um, in the healthcare field, we spend trillions of dollars dealing with the impacts of what we're not taking care of on the front end. It's the same in education where I spent many years. We spend uh, fortunes trying to mitigate the impact of the inequities that we're not willing to tackle aggressively on the front end. So I think this is very relevant in our strategic planning. If we're looking at health outcomes, there's no way to improve health outcomes without dealing with the inequities, racial, economic, environmental, that uh, Ken Kinney was just talking about. Thank you, Trustee Friedman. Uh, Trustee Fox, he just moved. There, there he is. Trustee Fox and then Trustee Esteem. Well, I'm a fan of Berwick too, and uh, I agree with everything he writes. I think his being in Boston and our being in the Bay Area, uh, you know, we might feel that these things, uh, we need to go out and accomplish these things, but we have to understand that. I think the, the rest of the country is a lot more conservative than we are in the, in the areas that we're in. And so we'll wait till hell freezes over if we wait for this to be done on a central national level. And, and we need to do whatever we can uh, along the lines that Berwick talks about at the, at the California level and at the local level, if we ever expect to get there. Thanks, Trustee Fox. Trustee Esteen. Yeah, I mean, I think everybody is speaking, preaching the gospel. I mean, I, I love what I'm hearing. And I think Trustee Fox, you just touched on exactly what I was gonna say that sometimes these, um, these obligations, which, I think our obligations to try to fix our society feel so large and cumbersome that it's almost like to, to recognize the issue is to kick the can down the road because how do we fix it? Who's, who's in charge? Who's responsible? All of us, none of us. It's kind of like the bystander effect. If we see this issue and it's so big, whose responsibility is it really? And who's gonna be the first organization, the first, I mean, Look at what's happening in Russia right now. Are we gonna get more gas? Are we gonna get more uh, solar power? You know, are we gonna stay home? Are we gonna go back to work? Are we gonna have electric cars? It's all these like dilemmas of, of moral crisis and it's also imminent. Um, and, you know, I think real solutions are tangible, um, but even within our governance structure, this health system is divorced from the county. And the county has the mandate to provide care. So I think we also have other kinds of moral dilemmas that we can manage as step one or steps along the way. 
Thank you, Trustee Esteem. Trustee Jensen. Oh, thank you. This is um, a great article. I it it um, made me reflect back to the early 2000s when um, I was part of a Alameda County broad um, committee called Health is Not Just Healthcare, and that committee was basically <laughs> looking at all of the things from food deserts to reentry to mental health to um, early childhood nutrition things that aren't necessarily part of the, the spectrum of acute care or ancillary services that a healthcare provider provides, but they all do, do definitely contribute to a person's state of health. And so um, Dr. Tony Eiten and um, Supervisor Chan were leaders in that effort. And it, it really did some things to, to bring this forward. And, and I know um, with regard to food deserts and um, and food, the provision of nutrition, I, I think Alameda Health System has really made some great strides there with our um, food as medicine program. So we, we are working on it, we're doing some things, but I, I appreciate the, the um, article. And I think that there's, we are dedicated and there's more that we can do in this area for sure. Thank you, Trustee Jensen. You know, one thing I like about Berwick is he, he shoots for the stars, and but he's also a very, he's a pragmatist, I, in my opinion, or a, a, an optimistic pragmatist. And he, so he actually, on the second page of this, he sort of outlines sort of a how-to. So to, to take a few of the elements of the how-to, one, which are things which are achievable. Um, uh, starting out, he's one of his bullet points, it's in red, page two, for those of you who have the article, keep this article in your library. Realization in statute of healthcare as a human right in the US. This board has the power to make resolution on anything we want, you know? So I, I'm just saying, I'm gonna, read, I'm gonna read one of his last actions, which is sort of a, another how-to playbook. What specific actions can individuals and organizations take toward the morally guided campaign sketched above? Physicians, nurses, and other healthcare professionals can speak out write opinion pieces, work with community organizations devoted to the issues listed, and most important of all, vote and ensure that colleagues vote on election days. Organizations can also act. They can contact local criminal justice authorities and develop programs to ensure proper care for incarcerated people and create paths of reentry to work in society for people leaving incarceration. They can identify the needs for housing and food security in local communities set goals for improvement and manage progress as for any health improvement project. They can pay all staff wages sufficient for healthy living, which is far above legal minimum wages. They can lobby harder for universal health coverage and US participation in human rights conventions. They can, uh, they can examine and work against implicit and structural racism. They can do whatever it takes to ensure universal voter turnout for the entire healthcare workforce. So um, that, that's a pretty darn good playbook right there. He's a smart dude. Um, so with that, uh, I'm gonna give it to our CEO to close out. And then I'm gonna give it to uh, vice president if she has anything for executive officers and then secretary treasurer. Mr. CEO, good evening, sir. Good evening, Chair Bouquet and trustees. Thank you for the opportunity. I will just, a, a few thoughts on the article. Thank you for sharing such a, a provocative, 
thought-provoking article. Um, I'm trained as a public health professional, and one of the base tenets is that um, a society is only as healthy as the least healthy member of that society. And so, you know, it's incumbent upon us to always try to find where are the opportunities. Um, our mission statement, caring, healing, teaching, serving all, emphasis on serving all. And so we have it in statute, but I am intrigued because Dr. Francis is going to speak to us in a bit. And I, I, I suspect that he's going to point out opportunities for improvement for us, where we can do a better job of reaching out and, and serving all. So I am I am looking forward to that. And I will close by you know, sharing something that former President Obama often said, and that is he would challenge people to push him, you know, to always challenge him to do more. And I personally have adopted that. I welcome the, the challenge to do better, to do more. And I believe that we're on that path via our best initiative, building excellent sustainability and trust, but we can always do a little bit more. And so uh, thank you for the article and for the challenge. Thank you, sir. Uh, I'll now go to Madam Vice President, Madam Secretary Treasurer. Uh, this is the executive officer's report, not the president's report. So uh, Madam Vice Chair, Vice President. Um, thanks, thanks, Dr. Chair. I just want to make one point with regard to your article that, um, and your, your, your suggestion that there are the actions that we can take according to Dr. Berwick, that um, Dr. McClure and um, a, a group of physicians are, are, are doing that in, in many ways, but in one way is the Climate Health Now initiative that physicians, nurses, and health professionals in California recognizing climate change as a public health emergency. So I just wanted to give a um, you know, shout out to that group because that's, that's been, a, it's, it's an area that's important and it's an area that perhaps um, healthcare providers have, have just recently begun to advocate and their advocacy is, is critical. Thank you. Madam Secretary, Treasurer. I have no report this week except to say thank you for sharing this article. It was excellent reading and I too appreciate how thought provoking it has been. Thank you everyone for that discussion. That's why we're here, right? Let's close out item A and item B. We'll go back to our CEO, Mr. Jackson. Wonderful. Thank you, sir. I will share screen and present my CEO's report. Are you able to see my screen? Very good. It's just not in presentation mode. There we go, sir. Great, okay, um, let me uh, start at the beginning. Um, so this is the CEO report for the March 9th, uh, 2022 meeting. Um, and I wanna start with a patient-centered story that took place at Alameda Hospital. And this is a personal story from Ms. Ronica Shelton, who is the Vice President of Patient Care Services. And I will share her words for your your consumption. A Monday afternoon in October, I was sitting at my desk on a union Zoom meeting at 425 and hoping to head home soon. I was suddenly gripped with terrible upper abdominal pain. Very concerned and with insistence from coworkers, I walked over to the emergency room. The ED was extremely busy, but I never felt alone. My pain was treated immediately with warm blankets for comfort, yellow socks, etc., designating me as a potential fall risk. 
the nurse and the physician check in on me frequently to keep me apprised of my plan of care. The MyChart app was awesome. I knew my labs and radiology results even before speaking to the physician. Upon admission, the medical surgical team ensured that I received pain med regularly and was comfortable and warm. I witnessed their hourly rounding and always felt that they were here for me. My call light was answered immediately by a friendly voice and my needs were met timely. Two days later, my stress heightened while being transported to the operating room. While I'm speaking with anesthesia, the nervous tears began to flow and that's all I know. Very thankful for sedation. The care I received from the emergency department, the med surge team, case management, and the OR was exceptional. Even the EDS, EDS member um, always greeted me when coming into the room. I also want to recognize the kitchen staff who ensured that I had popsicles at the ready. I was treated with kindness, respect, and dignity at all times. I put my trust in this hospital and was not disappointed. During my stay, I felt all treatment was kept confidential, except now, of course. I want to recognize Dr. Hadro, Rule Yui, Pam Loftus, and Sarah Downey in the emergency department. In the OR, Dr. Freedy and Nurse Sherry Smith, the med search team of Jennifer Dizon and Veronica San Juan and many others. I am grateful for Drs. Miraflor, Castaneda, Kaluri, and Bouquet, and all of the Alameda Hospital team who had a hand in my care. Lastly, I want to thank the nurse managers, Orman Salters, Jessica Vinkovich, Drew Lane, and Pat Reynolds for their leadership. It was evident in the care that I received. I have recovered completely, and I am happy to be back at work. This story really resonated with me. Um, one might cynically say, well, she worked there, they knew her and they treated her well. But in talking to Ronica, she's very clear that that's not what happened. She felt like this is the way these folks do their work and that they take pride in their work and it manifests in everything that they do. And so I just really wanted the board and the public to, to know this, this wonderful story. I'll move now to the operations and program updates, starting with sustainability. Um, I wanna spend some time talking about the build, the best initiative, which I alluded to earlier, and that's um, our work with the partner, we're partnering with the Huron Consulting Firm. BEST stands for Building Excellence, Sustainability, and Trust. And we feel like those are the key elements that this organization needs coming out of the, you know, the, the turmoil, the tumult of the past few years. This, these were the key elements that we thought we should focus on. In regards to financial sustainability, on this slide, you can see the key areas that are, are the work streams we're working in, supply chain, rev cycle, pharmacy, care optimization, and medical group. You can see that um, the minimum benefit that we feel will accrue to the organization by virtue of this work is just under $40 million. We believe that the max out of this is close to 56 million. Moving to the right of the page, you can see that what we have confirmed and verified so far um, through December, 4.21 million. Um, unconfirmed through January, that is an $8.31 million figure. So um, knowing that this work began in earnest approximately October, um, we are very pleased with the results so far from a financial perspective. Gonna move now to patient experience. Um, and I wanna talk about the culture of safety survey, which is underway currently. Um, the culture of safety survey opened um, at the beginning of the month of March, in essence. 
and it will run through the 21st of March. And the objective really is to determine how do staff, providers, clinicians feel um, their safety and their work setting is appropriate for them to be able to optimize the care that they're delivering. And so we achieved a 72% response rate last year. Um, and that wasn't easy. Um, when we opened the survey, and that was shortly after I returned to the organization, there was a lot of feedback. Staff said, among other things, one, the results haven't, the results haven't been shared with us. Um, we do these surveys and then we don't see the results. So we made a, a commitment to sharing the results, good, bad, or indifferent, with the, all of the staff and then integrating them into the work plans that will be developed. The other thing that they expressed was a concern. They felt like if they gave their true opinions that there would be retaliation. And so it was incumbent upon us to really protect their confidentiality and their security. So we did achieve the 72% response rate last time. This time our target is 80% as you see on this document. In the daily actions, you can see what we're doing to really um, encourage our staff to partake in the survey. And you can see, as you look to the right of the page, how we're doing so far. And as of the ninth, we have achieved a 24% response rate. So, you know, just rough math, we're about a weekend and we've achieved about 25, 24% of the, you know, the target that we have. And so I am cautiously optimistic that we will meet our 80% of employee respondents. I'd love to get higher than that, but um, it would be a great achievement for us to get 80% response rate. So I, I look forward to any thoughts that the trustees might have about that. Moving to workforce, um, just I, I shared previously what we're doing with the rounding and I have intended to change this. I call it CEO rounding, but it's really more than the CEO rounding. All of the executive team is rounding and we are in the process of building an executive walk rounds um, tool that we will implement. And so just really doing the management by walking around philosophy, because there's so much to be learned from talking to our staff. And so you can see the numbers, um, they continue to grow. So having really productive and meaningful conversations with the staff. In regards to COVID-19 through the 8th of March, you can see that we remain at about 95% of the active employees fully vaccinated. Um, that number hasn't changed in a while and that's not surprising given the number of people who are on leave of absence. Um, but what I'm very excited about, well, one, I, I need to say they won't return to work um, unless they either are vaccinated or they have an approved um, uh, declination to being vaccinated. Um, but in regards to boosters, the number now is 87% of the staff who are eligible have received their boosters, which is a significant uptick since the last time I reported this to you. So we are um, pleased that we now have 87% of our staff fully vaccinated and with their booster. Finally, uh, turning to governance, um, you're all aware that there is a governance process that the county has initiated. It was started last year about this time. And then it, it slowed down a bit for a number of reasons, but supervisors um, Brown and Valle have taken this for action. Um, they have reinitiated meetings, which um, on behalf of AHS, Dr. Bouquet and I participate in. Um, there are members of labor who are present, members of the Healthcare Services Agency, 
and county leadership who are all there in advisory capacities, because at the end of the day, this is the Board of Supervisors decision in regards to what will happen with the governance um, model for the Alameda Health System. You can see here the scheduled meetings. And so we have another one this Friday, which will be finance focused and it's anticipated that the subsequent meeting will also be focused on finance. And you can see the topics for the following meetings. And the last meeting is a TBD and that's July 1st, if necessary. I believe that the supervisors are, are hopeful that they will be able to come to an, a decision by the June meeting, but if not, they have the July meeting as an option. That is my report, trustees. Um, I am happy to take any questions. Sir, would you put us back to full screen? Absolutely. Thank you, Mr. CEO. Um, uh, trustees, any questions of Mr. Jackson? Hi, Trustee Blue. Uh, clerk, uh, you note that Trustee Blue is now in attendance. Madam Clerk. Got it, thank you. Thank you. Trustee Blue, welcome. You're on mute. It's not a meeting unless you say you're on mute. <laughs> okay. Uh, I wanted to know if these meetings were open to the public or to other members of the board of trustees. I believe you're referring to the governance meeting. Is that correct? Yes. They are not. Um, they are by invitation only. And the, they're very explicit, they being the supervisors, that um, they there is a limit, frankly, to even who can speak. And so while um, Trustee Bouquet and I are speaking members, there are staff people from a, there's a staff person from AHS and from other organizations who are present, but they are not able to participate. They're there to um, record and provide support for us, but um, the supervisor are being very prescribed in terms of who can be present and who can actually speak at the meetings. And Mr. Jackson, if you'll remind everybody, uh, the supervisor's position on the committee membership. Yes. <laughs> yeah, they, well, it's, it, it is supervisors Brown and Valle, and they will make their recommendation to the four, full board of soups, but they are the only members of the committee. And so I, I perhaps wasn't as explicit as I should be. We are there in an advisory capacity, but we're not members of this committee. We are there to provide input to the two committee members, that being the supervisors. Is that what you were referring to, Chair Bouquet? Yes, sir. Thank you. Any other questions for the CEO? Mr. CEO, how, uh, Mr. Jackson, how about talk to me about positions filled within the organization? Yes, I um, we had a we had a joint meeting with the board of supervisors, the board of trustees, and the board of supervisors have a an obligation by charter to meet three times a year. That hadn't been happening, and so we had the first meeting. I believe it was last week that, since 2020, and so glad that we are. Um, reinitiating that. I think it's very important for the supervisors and the trustees to have um, an opportunity to directly interface. All of that is a, a way of saying that one of the things I presented at that meeting, and that is an open meeting, that is open to the public, but in that meeting I presented an org chart um, that showed, it highlighted the number of new um, executive team members and director level members. And so um, about a third of the executive team, director and up, has turned over. 
in the past year. And so um, I, I don't know if that's what you were alluding to, Chair Bouquet, but um, it, it was striking to see it graphically illustrated the amount of turnover that we've had and the successes we've had in the past year, given that we've had such significant turnover. It's sort of what I was alluding to, but not specifically. I wanted to clap hands for people. Oh, my goodness. Happy <laughs> to, thank you for, you know, the not so subtle goading. Yes. Um, I, I, I wanted to clap my hands for some people tonight. Yes. Well, I'm going to start with um, our chief medical officer. We had an exhaustive search. We had an open um, selection process, and we had very strong candidates come forward, um, both externally and internally. And Dr. Felicia Tornabene, who has been our interim chief medical officer for, for about five, six months now, um, was selected. She was the clear favorite. And just really, I'm really pleased and proud that we were able to extend the offer and she is accepted. So absolutely. Anyone else, sir? I, um, well, I may have said this before, but I'll say it again. Um, our interim legal counsel is now our permanent legal counsel, that being Mr. Ahmad Azizi. Ahmad has been with the organization for a number of years, most recently as the assistant um, general counsel, and he stepped into the interim role, served, has served quite capably, and has accepted the role as permanent general counsel for the organization. So I'm happy to have had that position filled as well. Mr. Jackson, are there, only, are there any remaining interim positions on your executive leadership team? Yes, the compliance position, um, we have um, Akimi Ren, who is serving um, in the interim role. That search continues. And so that position is um, yet to be finalized. But on the executive team, that is the last position that is interim. Congratulations to you and the team. Thank you very much. Congratulations to us all. Very happy. Um, trustees, any comments or questions uh, for Mr. Jackson's report? Thank you, everybody. That closes out item B. Boy, we're running on only two minutes behind. Let's go to medical staff reports, uh, super important uh, part of our uh, direct engagement with our physician leaders. We have three medical staff leaders in the, in the room. Dr. Irina Williams, who is the chief of the medical staff for Highland and uh, San Leandro. Uh, Dr. Idris Abzali, who's the San Leandro Hospital Leadership Committee uh, lead. And then we have, of course, Dr. Nikita, Dr. Nikki Joshi, uh, who is our Alameda Hospital Chief of Staff. So um, Dr. Joshi, why don't you take a lead off for us? Okay, great, thank you so much. Thank you for having me to speak to the Board of Trustees this evening. Uh, as you can see, the report that I submitted is a little bit different in format, and I'm hoping to organize it a little differently moving forward and to group it um, under categories that are pertinent and that are meaningful to us in our discussions in the Board of Trustees. So um, I'm talking specifically under the category of B and discussing things lumped under quality and patient safety, operations, strengths, and opportunities. So under quality and patient safety, uh, we had a recent RCA that led to some really good discussions and findings that we are already implementing in terms of positive changes to how we're approaching our patients. So I'm really glad that that was a fruitful, positive dialogue. Uh, in terms of operations, we have been 
working very hard with our administration, especially Mario Harding and Mark Brown in terms of ambulance offload. So March 1st has already passed. Ambulances, Falk has already started their hard offload um, policy. I am sure that Dr. Avzali is going to talk more about it, so I'll leave the specifics about what the policy is to him. Uh, but what I will say is that we truly appreciate Mario Harding working with us at Alameda Hospital. We have a tent up. We haven't used it yet, but we have the means by which to take care of these patients. My nurse manager, Drew Lane, um, has been doing an excellent job of working with everyone, so really appreciate that. Strengths. I want to highlight our stroke coordinator, Rebecca Hildalgo. She started with us a few months ago. She's excellent. She is already making a significant positive impact on our ability to deal with our stroke patients that come to Alameda Hospital. Um, we're a stroke center and we heavily rely on this individual to do not only a great job, but an exemplary job and Rebecca meets that. In fact, she recently spoke in the community of Alameda Hospital February 24th. It was a community event where she educated the general public within Alameda about uh, symptoms of stroke and what to do. Um, some opportunities are kind of under the key concerns, ambulance offloading, which I already talked about. Imaging and diagnostics, we continue to work with Troy Ashford, who has also been a great person leading his group. We've made a lot of positive movement in terms of our access to MRI. Uh, we've had some conversations about communications and utilizing of email listservs, so I appreciate that. Uh, we've had conversations with our partners at Highland about our ability at Alameda Hospital to access ultrasound and echo, which sometimes becomes an issue uh, because of staffing. And so it's all moving in the right direction. There's communication and dialogue that's happening, which is patient-centered, and we appreciate that. Access to subspecialists. Um, we've made a lot of progress with Dr. Williams in terms of the emergency department and inpatient access to subspecialties. And she's done a lot of work. We look forward to that expanding beyond the initial three specialties, which currently are hematology, oncology, nephrology, and pulmonology. Um, we have worked, um, I, I should not say we, Dr. Turner Bennett worked very hard and we have secured nephrology for um, our patients at Alameda Hospital starting in the springtime. That was a concern that she was able to meet quickly uh, and with high caliber, high quality. So we're excited about that. Um, and then in terms of radiology, I'm not sure if I've heard any updates from VRAD. So just looking forward to just hearing more about that. And that's the conclusion of my report. And I am able to answer any questions or address any comments. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Joshi. Trustees, any questions about uh, for Dr. Joshi at Alameda Hospital? Dr. Joshi, I have a question. Give, given, uh, I mean, your understanding of kind of flow through the emergency department, what what your what your capacity is. Do you would do you forecast the ambulance offloading? to be an issue at Alameda Hospital itself? Yeah, you know, in fact, just yesterday, we had to actually use the policy and Drew Lane worked with that. So the thing about Alameda Hospital is that we are a 12 bed emergency department and Alameda Hospital, although of course it's 24 hours, our patients tend to come during the daytime. So yesterday in the emergency department, we saw about 53, 54 patients. I forget the specific number, but around that much. But majority of them came 
pretty much between 2 p.m. and midnight. It was a significant influx of patients. And that's when our ambulances come as well. And so yesterday we had two ambulances come. Our nurses were unable to room those patients. And so they were hard offloaded. We had our state issued paramedics stay with those patients until the nurses were able to room them. It went smoothly, no issues, no patient safety concerns. So that being said, even though we are small, even though um, it shouldn't feel like it should impact us, Alameda Hospital really does get impacted. Okay, that's, that's, that's important to hear. Um, trustees, any other, and as you know, we'll be hearing about this later. This is one of the agenda items we'll be hearing about from CAOs uh, Harding and Brown uh, for item G3. They're gonna be talking to us about their perspectives on this later this evening. Trustees, any other, uh, Trustee Jensen. You're on mute. Trustee Jensen, you're on mute. Sorry about that. I just wanted to know um, the ambulance provider. I wanted to ask Dr. Joshi which provider it was, if it was City of Alameda or the um, contracting provider. I'm not 100% sure. Let me, um, what I can do is I can have Drew Lane follow up with you for that specific question. Let me just see real quick. I don't need a follow up. If you had it available, that would be fine. But yeah, I'm sorry. I don't know that specifically. I apologize. Trustees, any other questions of Dr. Of, uh, Dr. Joshi? Thank you for your report, Dr. Joshi. Let's go with Dr. Zali next. Good evening, sir. Uh, hi, good evening, all. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, I have my key points uh, from the San Leandro Leadership Committee meeting on March 1st uh, in the board book. Um, I am going to jump around just a little bit uh, on those points, highlighting the important stuff. Uh, and then uh, there's a number of items that are related, I'll save uh, for the last comment. Um, but first of all, uh, I'm excited to announce that we have an ultrasound director uh, coming to the community EDs starting August uh, of this year. And uh, our hospitals have also shown interest in point of care ultrasound and uh, ultrasound guided uh, procedures. Um, and uh, there's already discussion with the system-wide ultrasound uh, director as well as uh, our future ED uh, uh, appointed uh, ultrasound director who will be starting in August. Um, so uh, uh, looking forward to exciting collaboration both between the ED, the inpatient and system-wide. Um, the uh, uh, other item on the agenda, uh, on the key items I have is the work Place Violence Work Group, which has been moving along uh, great, led by uh, Mr. Mario Harding. Uh, appreciate all his hard work on that and looking forward to some solid results given the uh, increased incidence and severity of the uh, uh, workplace violence uh, incidents that we've been having uh, uh, across all the EDs uh, in, in recent months. Uh, the item that I saved for the end uh, requires a little bit of discussion and they're, they're all related. So key points one, three, and item two on key point five are all related. The CDPH and TALA survey that occurred in January related to ambulance arrivals to the ED. 
and eventual departure from the ED and going to another site. Um, we don't have a final word on this yet, uh, but we've taken away some uh, great learning points, including uh, prioritizing the arrival of those patients into EPIC, so they're on our track board and on our radar so that they can receive their medical screening exams. Uh, the set, the uh, other item related to this is the EMS hard offload policy. So uh, in, in the policy and the verbiage, it still says that, that after the one hour cutoff, if the patient is still on the EMS journey, uh, that the supervisor might consider redirecting them to another site with consent from the patient. Uh, it's problematic from the ED's perspective because when they're on our property, we are required to do a medical screening exam. Uh, so there's, there's still some uh, sort of uh, kinks to be worked out. At San Leandro, the hope is that we will avoid the policy. And uh, although it's a, it's a draft, there's a workflow that I submitted uh, just very recently recommending that all low acuity patients be offloaded into the, into the lobby. Uh, of course, uh, that's an easier ask uh, than, than actually executing it because uh, our lobby is limited as well. Uh, and these patients require uh, at least some degree of supervision, uh, and they tend to be higher acuity than, than the walk-ins. Um, but the hope is that we, we, will, we will not have to experience any hard offloads. If we do, uh, our tent is still uh, not approved for, for use, although it's up and ready to be used, it needs the fire marshal approval. Um, I'm sure we'll hear more about this as we move. Uh, which takes me into the final connected item into, into that trio, and that's the patient arrival and triage restructure effort that I've been talking about since November. Uh, this is a multidisciplinary, multi-departmental effort uh, that included uh, quality, uh, risk, ED, uh, security, uh, uh, patient uh, uh, registration, um, and has gone through uh, a couple of hurdles and we finally had the uh, restructure of the ED in place, the, the physical uh, restructure of the ED in place on February 15th and have been using the new workflow. I have to commend the ED nurses that despite all the, the uh, challenges that they're presented with, they've taken this uh, uh, like winners and true emergency providers and, and have, uh, and have uh, sort of, uh, gone through the, the, the rigors and, and uh, so far, I, I already have some really great data that I'll, I can share with you next month. Uh, but uh, the reason why this is important is, is because it affects every patient that walks into the lobby. Uh, and there's been a number of cases in the past few months where uh, patients have had unfortunate outcomes uh, because of delays that uh, can and should be prevented. Um, and so the, the hope is to move everybody up front to greet the patient. It's putting the patient in the center. The patient comes in, sits in a chair, the tech arrives them, triage nurse registers them, and registration is there to finish out that process. At the end of that process, there's a provider that does a medical screening exam and orders whatever tests that need to be done. The reason why I decided to leave this out to the end because in the past week, there's been a number of complications. Um, registration is, is a, a bit offset currently in, in the lobby, uh, and it moves the patient away from the natural work, workflow uh, and movement of the patient towards the ED. And uh, uh, even though we're in, 
on March 9th now, we're almost a month out of uh, using this new workflow registration continues to reside in that fishbowl uh, for initially uh, reasons given were um, uh, IT related, but they've gotten a bit more complicated as, as we move. Uh, none of it has to do with patient care and patients uh, in the center. My concern is that this, um, this delay in moving registration out with the, with the rest of the team uh, jeopardizes the entire effort uh, because it also uh, disillusions the techs and the nurses that are out there with these patients uh, into thinking that if others don't have to be out here, we don't have to, why, why are we? Um, ED is not an easy place to work. It's challenging. It's challenging for everybody to work with, and there's risks that have to, that have to be taken into account. Uh, I'm hoping that we will get through the, these challenges that's been present, uh, presented by registration so we can move forward with this workflow uh, and, and not, not jeopardize it. Because with the, uh, with the EMTALA survey still pending from CMS, with the EMS offload policy uh, already in effect, there's gonna be a more, even a, a more urgent need to get this process working. Uh, and with that, I will pause for questions. Trustees, any questions of Dr. Afzali? Dr. Afzali, uh, this is a statement I question. Thank you for organizing your report in the key points. I got some feedback from, from some other trustees from Quality. It makes it more digestible for the, for the trustees to be a, with pros and, and key points. So thank you for that. Trustees, any I a, questions? I have a request. Um, yes. Hearing about the, the violence that's been increasing, is it possible to get a report out on that uh, at some later date? Um, yes, uh, this is Mark, uh, Trustee Esteen. We, in fact, yesterday I was talking to Mario about this. Mario and Roll have led the efforts and we talked about a possible board presentation. So absolutely. Uh, the findings were really good. The recommendations, fantastic. Um, so they can talk about that and also how we're setting it, setting the whole structure up to continue to um, be accountable with the recommendation. Yeah. Thank you, That'd Mr. Fransky. Thank you, Trustee Esteen. And uh, uh, Trustee Blue chairs our HR committee. So this might be HR relevant items as well for, for consideration. So thank you for giving us some tracking items, Trustee Esteen. Thank you, Dr. Oxal. Uh, tr uh, Trustee Banerjee, I think you wanted to say something. Thank you, Chair. Um, Dr. Oxali, uh, thanks for your report. I know that last month you had said that the medical staff at San Leandro were kind of reassessing uh, reevaluating in conversations themselves about how you feel related to like uh, your your your, your um, uh, within the system and how are those conversations going and then how might you know there be support if there are for um, um, that you can think of from leadership or the board um, would there be one or two things that you can think of from your team that might help and for us to be, uh, to help support that process. Thank you for, uh, for raising that again. Um, I think uh, there's, uh, there might always be this uh, uh, complex there. Uh, there, you know, we're, we're not the main site. Our, our licenses uh, and, uh, and joined with Highland. 
there are many who only practice at, at San Leandro. Uh, the feeling of uh, appropriate representation uh, or uh, lack thereof uh, will be a constant struggle, I think. Um, so having proper representation and voice is important. Uh, and I think there's been efforts made in that direction uh, over the past year, uh, as well as over the past month. And I think that just needs to continue. Um, we met last month, and this will be more, uh, I'll have in more, uh, more detail uh, in my April report, but uh, we did decide to go to a quarterly meeting for the leadership committee. Um, with, with that said, uh, there will be monthly uh, check-ins with our uh, administrative leads, as well as uh, my reports to the board. Uh, and I think that uh, helped ease a lot of the anxiety behind, behind the discussion. Uh, it'll also allow me to continue to have my reports to the uh, broader MEC uh, on a monthly basis and not on a quarterly basis, which I think was kind of a trigger for some of the uh, sentiment uh, previously. Um, with all that said, I think quarterly meetings for us will be uh, more productive, more, more organized, uh, with uh, higher yield, if you will, um, when we do meet. Uh, and I've reserved the right to call uh, ad hoc meetings uh, whenever necessary and a, and a big issue comes up. Thank you for that. Context is everything and for things that you know, work for you all in your setting and to be able to like be part of a system and yet kind of understand the uniqueness that each of these components bring is so important to be able to um, create a just culture. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that comment, Trustee Banerjee. And Dr. Afzali, as you and I have had comments, a place will be reserved monthly for you at both the quality committee and the full board. So it's- uh, Truly appreciate it, thank you. It's, it's, it's your venue to use. Um, with that, we'll close out the report from Dr. Vzali. Good evening, Dr. Williams. Good evening. Um, I will start with my report. Um, as you can see in your executive summary, we had um, a few committee reports at uh, the last MEC. We have received a department report from the Department of Anesthesiology, um, San Leandro Leadership Committee report that Dr. Avzali has already summarized, and the CME committee report. Um, we have a few updates regarding department chair searches. Um, as you may recall, we we're currently looking for uh, four chairs uh, for different departments. The good news is that we, in the final stages with the candidate for the chair of the Department of Anesthesiology. Um, so hopefully um, we're gonna have a chair um, there soon. Um, we're still looking uh, for the chair and the candidates for the chairmanship of the Department of Orthopedic Surgery and Medicine. And we will be launching the search committee for the department chair of emergency medicine this month. So very important roles, lots of work is being done around it. So I'm very grateful for our um, search committees and the le uh, leaders of the committees and um, all the efforts around this. Um, in terms of the key concerns, um, one is provider burnout. Um, two years um, into the pandemic, uh, coming out of the surge, providers are tired, and that sort of um, manifests. And we wanna support our providers and wanna make sure we don't burn them to the point where we lose them or to the point where um, 
there may be a safety concern or an error or, or a mistake. Um, we have discussed this issue with our uh, medical exec executive committee members, and we've identified some drivers for provider burnout. Um, which includes some optimal practice support, um, lack of protected time for um, EPIC uh, in, in basket management, suboptimal administrative support. Um, and I believe that some of that may be addressed as a part of the best initiative um, by Huron Consulting. So I'm looking forward to learning how we can do these things better. Um, uh, there's also limited wellness and well-being support um, available to our providers within our health system. And we sort of have this culture of not taking a break and not asking for help. So um, uh, I, I believe it's important to look into expanding some of these resources that are available for our providers, as well as allowing them to take time to care for themselves when they need it. Um, the next concern is um, centered around the department chair search. As uh, the committees were going through the search, um, there were some challenges that were identified around um, administrative support and administrative partnership that department chairs may benefit from uh, that currently doesn't exist. So we sort of started this conversation with assistant leadership about uh, exploring the uh, administrative partnership diet structure for our chairs, especially for larger, more complex departments. Um, I believe this conversation is ongoing um, at this point. And the third concern, which is sort of a standing concern that is um, going to be here for a while, and I appreciate Mr. Jackson providing some updates today, is about Alameda Health System governance structure. We're sort of um, staying tuned and um, we appreciate transparent communication from the leadership about it and uh, looking forward for future updates. And that concludes my report. Um, I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you for your report, Dr. Williams. Trustees, any questions of Dr. Williams and a report to us on Highland slash San Leandro? And Fairmont and wellness centers. And the wellness centers. <laughs> Apologies to the wellness centers. Uh, yes, the wellness centers, everyone. Trustee Banerjee. Yeah, um, thank you, Dr. Williams. The, when you spoke about the provider burnout, I know that at, um, what's it, in 2020, that there was a, like a halftime position for um, supporting with wellness and things. And I don't, maybe I not followed up with that, didn't know that has that, is it still, is it sustaining? Is it still at that position is it has it expanded or uh, kind of fallen by the wayside during COVID? Great question. I believe you're referring to um, a psychologist position that was created to support our providers uh, within HS. Is that correct? Right. Um, right. Yeah. From my understanding now, uh, this position was transferred to uh, EBMG, uh, to the East Bay Medical Group. So that provider is with that medical group. So her services are available for physicians who are part of EBMG, but not to the other medical groups. And also from my understanding, uh, this provider is not full-time still. And um, Dr. Achilles Warren can correct me if I'm wrong. No, that's correct. Um, that yeah, we sort of transitioned her position into full sort of coaching, wellness support, um, leading circles with physicians, and that was 
really successful as a kickoff. She um, ended up transitioning into a parental leave and um, will likely become a contractor. So I think this is an area that um, we could continue to invest in. Um, and I completely agree with the assessment that Dr. Williams made. Okay. Is there, um, I mean, I just want to make sure that one is not perpetuating any inequities. So this will, this, is only available to EBMG physicians, but not if your AIM or UCSF or other physicians, if they need mental health support and things, they don't have the option of having this be. Is that because of contractual terms? Because when it began, it was for open to anybody, any physician who wanted help. So this is actually kind of, uh, uh, and you know, we can talk offline about like why uh, we did something that would cut some people out of getting support where when everybody's hurting, uh, I mean, we need to have more for sure than a half-time person. So there is a bandwidth issue there. But I mean, I, I think that as we make any decisions about like what kind of data we use, what kind of we want to make sure that at all times we, in our own system, whether it's internal or field-facing that we don't deem people or places deem them worthy, uh, deem them justifiable for sacrifice zones, you know? So um, that's something we need to keep asking ourselves, who benefits, who's burdened, why, what are the upstream, downstream? So to be discussed, but would love uh, any um, follow-up on that if we can, thanks. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to add to that, that um, I have met with the chair of our provider well-being committee, and um, uh, she, we reviewed a proposal from her that uh, to, of how she sort of um, envisions expanding the services of that well-being committee to be able to provide more meaningful support uh, to our providers. And a part of the proposal is expanding the access to coaching because uh, in the experience of the members of the provider well-being committee, it seems like um, coaching is the one, the most commonly sort of required service in this instances. And that's, and it will be great if we can provide at least a number of sessions to our providers um, for, without them having to uh, carry an, an expense. But uh, we, as of right now, we're not sure sort of uh, uh, how, where to find a source of funding for that particular initiative, uh, because we do want the service to be available to all our providers, and uh, we don't want to um, we don't want any inequity, like you mentioned. I think this is a good item for a for a tracking uh, for us, Trustee Banerjee. Okay. Any other questions of Dr. Williams? Thank you, uh, Chiefs of Staff, for, for your reports. Um, so with that, we'll close out item C. Let's go to item D. So uh, I wanna give context for, for, this, for this item. This is entitled East Bay Medical Group Update. Now, Dr. Akila Swarn has probably given this board, I think maybe three updates before. Um, the governance structure established is such that the East Bay Medical Group Board actually reports to the Alameda Health System Board of Trustees. I think as, as things have settled out here, finding lines of sight and governance are important. So I, I think the, the, the purpose here is to make this a standing agenda item to give better line of sight for the AHS board to EBMG, which as everyone knows is a wholly owned subsidiary of the, of, of, of the, of the organization. 
So this is going to forthwith be a, a standing agenda item for Dr. Achilles Warren and the, the EBMG board chair. Uh, that's Dr. Bernice Perez. I don't see her in the room this evening, but I think this will be Dr. Achilles Warren. So with that, this is gonna be a new standing agenda item for us to improve our line of sight. Dr. Achilles Warren, uh, mic's yours. Thank you. Uh, good evening, trustees and executive leadership team and other audience members. I'm gonna um, go ahead and share my screen. Dr. Perez is actually working right now in the ER, so she's not able to join us this evening. Can folks see my screen? Great. Well, I welcome um, the opportunity to offer an update so that there is sort of more direct governance over EBMG from the Board of Trustees um, and have really enjoyed um, the, the, the closer relationship we've all formed over the last um, month or month and a half. Um, so I'm looking forward to it. I also welcome feedback on what you want to hear about. Um, so I'm going to give sort of a little bit of an overall update. It'll be quite brief. Um, and then going forward, I'm happy to happy to have more focused presentations. Um, so, you know, talking about burnout, I'm going to build on Dr. Williams' presentation. Um, I obviously think a lot about um, how we staff our clinical services. EBMG is the single biggest employer of all of our physicians, um, 25 specialties represented, and one of the biggest, um, I think, impediments to morale is having understaffed services, knowing that you have to pick up for colleagues that aren't, that don't exist and may not exist for months or years. Um, and some of our services have been understaffed for years. Um, so I'm really, really proud of um, the work that we've done to recruit in critical um, areas, critical positions. Um, Dr. Williams started to talk through this a bit, and all of these folks will be hired through East Bay Medical Group, um, or have been hired through East Bay Medical Group. But to me, um, recruiting and the, the flywheel around recruiting actually represents the tenor and the morale of the organization. because. The biggest source of recruiting is our own physicians, a word of mouth network. And so the fact that our recruiting has ramped up so significantly in the last couple of months to me actually is an optimistic note. Um, it means that our own physicians are putting their feelers out there and are advocating for people to come into the group and join us. Um, so it's, it's really a moment of pride to be able to share some of the leadership positions we've been able to fill, but also just areas that we haven't been able to source um, recruits in for, for a long time. Um, so, so one of the areas Dr. Williams mentioned, very critical area, chair of anesthesia. We're so excited to welcome Dr. Laura Lang from um, ZSFG. Um, she has in immense experience in standardizing OR procedures and being able to, um, she, she was sort of responsible for that across um, the county in San Francisco. And so she's bringing that knowledge to us um, starting July. We also recruited Dr. Benson Chen from CPMC. He's been in an operational role in critical care over there, has started numerous quality improvement programs. He's really excited to make our critical care program a system-wide program, integrating all three sites um, where we have ICUs. Um, and he will obviously fill very big footstep, uh, uh, shoes with um, Dr. Colin Feeney. 40 years at AHS um, retiring this year. We've also recruited a sports medicine expert, um, PMNR. We're expanding that specialty, which is really exciting because it's connecting our um, rehab and post-acute areas with our um, acute care. Um, we are, we've recruited our first urologist in probably four years, um, who's coming to us from his training in New Mexico. Um, we have another regional acute pain expert coming to us to expand our anesthesia team, which will help support all of our procedural and, and surgical specialties. Um, and we also, from our own, we actually recruited Dr. Cassandra White, who um, came to us last year after doing some locums work, work with us, 
Um, she is, um, she trained, she's an Oakland native and is really excited to be our chief of obstetrics where we're doing so much work on equity, birth equity and um, improving black maternal health. So um, we are really, really lucky to have these folks. These are just highlights of the hires that we've been able to make. Um, and so I just wanted to share that with the board of trustees to say things are improving. We still have about 18 positions open, so the work is not done, and I anticipate this, this number will increase, but we are really excited to be partnering with AHS um, on actual um, formal recruiting through a firm that we've retained. So some of the key searches at the chair levels will be supported by an actual search firm. Going to compensation, I know that um, this board is uh, intimately familiar with the work that we've been doing on compensation restructuring, and that's all to keep our amazing talent with us and to recruit amazing talent to us. Um, so as you know, you approved the, the, um, the revision um, last month. We're finalizing all the numbers. I anticipate we'll be able to implement by the end of March. Um, our physicians are anxiously awaiting that, and it will really standardize and make more equitable our compensation moving forward. And we're now working on leadership compensation and also leadership expectations. And I think this is very much in line with um, not only recruiting great leaders, but also keeping um, our physicians amongst us and knowing that they have professional development paths by actually um, leveling leadership at the phys for physicians, um, creating expectations of what each level requires skill-wise and then supporting them through things like coaching, through peer support and mentorship, um, through um, performance review. So those are the sorts of processes we're hoping to um, put into place this year, um, in addition to benchmarking compensation appropriately. With regards to the union, um, we know that um, our union was certified on February 9th. Um, and so just a couple of brief points of update on that. Um, our physician organizers are working um, really hard to, uh, to stand up a leadership structure for our union as, as well as our priorities for our first contract. Um, EBMG is going to be working with IEDA, the labor relations firm, which AHS already uses. We're developing a three-way contract so that AHS is intimately involved with, those, uh, with that relationship and is at the table at, for, every, for every step of the way. Um, and EBMG leadership is continuing to work on the priorities that we've set out. We know that we're going to be collaborating with the union along the way and getting approval and input, but we still have agenda to, to continue with. And so that's very much going to be um, uh, kind of how we approach things moving forward. I'm going to skip this. We have, um, we, I sort of did a state of the, state of the um, organization last month, and so we have some goals for this year and next year, but um, I will get to that maybe um, next meeting as we crystallize them. I did want to spend like two or three minutes on an annual survey that um, we initiated last year, and this was so critical in helping us identify the fact that there were so many folks that were interested in leaving our organization and in fact left. Um, and so um, I want to just highlight some of the things that we captured in the survey to, again, give you a sense of the tenor of how people are feeling. So what did we do, do well last year? I'm really happy to say that most people um, commented that transparent communication was our biggest strength. And I think that's something we're seeing from our AHS executive leadership team as well, which to me is just about building trust. And I think that trust has increased immensely over the last 12 months. Highest priority item, just to be clear, is compensation and benefits. I'm really excited to be checking that box off pretty soon. Um, but also as a close second, unionization, making sure the process is inclusive and fair. So that's something that I know the organizers are prioritizing and I'll be helping facilitate. 
And then finally, just to uh, um, you know, make sure that we're all still aware, um, we asked the same question that we asked last year around the same time, how likely are you to leave VHS in the next 12 months? Um, we saw about the same numbers. 45% um, of folks um, are not planning on, or 42% of folks are not planning on leaving at all. About 41%, about the same number, are unlikely to leave but open, and then about 18% are saying they're going to leave. So what's interesting about this is um, the numbers have slightly gone up, and I think that's by virtue of people feeling more comfortable sharing how they really feel, which I think is a good thing. And the reason for um, wanting to depart uh, has changed. Um, previously, it was around trust in the administration, feeling like there were a lot of politics that couldn't be navigated and circumvented. And now it's really about practice support and the things that we can actually control and impact. Um, how can we optimize the work that physicians are doing so they're practicing at the top of their license? This is some of the stuff that's gonna come out of the Huron um, consulting um, engagement. And so I'm really excited that we'll actually start to address the real factors behind people um, feeling unsupported um, in our system. That concludes my presentation. I'm happy to take questions. Thank you for your presentation, Dr. Killiswaran. Trustees, open it up to the floor. These slides were not included in the packet. Uh, Dr. Killiswaran, can you send that to our clerk of the board to, so they can have that as a reference item for future? Yes. Come on, trustees. Dr. Achilles Warren, how would you rank list your, your uh, as you forecast as the president of EVMG, what are your, what are sort of your, like your top things that you'll, speed bumps that you'll have to navigate this year? What are um, you anticipating? Yeah, the, I mean, the first item was really around restructuring compensation, and that's going to be done very, very soon. Um, I think the second item is around optimizing our staffing because Again, filling out our teams is gonna be the most important thing that we can do to fulfill our mission. It's gonna make people feel like people wanna be here, they wanna come here, they wanna join us. Um, it'll help people be able to do the jobs that they came here to do and not more than that. Um, and so that, that'll that be the second thing. And really, I'm hoping to get to 90% completion of our staffing this year in the next 12 months. Um, the third is really around leadership, which I mentioned. Um, physician leadership is one of the deliverables that we have in our professional services agreement to AHS is providing physician leadership. We know that that's what makes this place run. And so working with Dr. Tornabene, for example, in defining how does physician leadership interface with AHS across the sites in the, in the matrices that we have to work in, whether it's geography, sites, um, specialty, um, and making sure that those pathways and expectations are clear. I think one of the biggest pieces of feedback we've gotten from physician leaders, and especially those who have left, leaders actually constituted about 25% of the folks that left last year um, and the feedback we got is, I didn't know what was expected of me. I didn't feel like I had enough support. Um, I didn't feel like I could really do the job that I wanted to do, which is unfortunate because these are all mission-driven individuals. So um, helping define that um, and having much more clear expectations and structure on leadership is something that um, is a priority this year as well. You feel resource for success? I, yeah, I'm really excited. We've already initiated a lot of these conversations with our um, with our executive team. I think they're all on board. There's a lot of change, of course, happening on there, and which I think reflects exactly the same principles. So, um, yeah, I think I think this is the next phase of East Bay Medical Group, which will which will be great. Everyone's excited about it. Thank you, trustees. I'd like trustees to say thank you. I see. I saw. I saw. 
I knew you wanted to ask something. Go for it. <laughs> Actually, it's it's more of a comment. I want to say kudos and, and thank you for this report. I'm so happy to see uh, an influx of leadership and an influx of new docs into the system to hear that folks are going to be supported and that the the surveys are demonstrating changes in opinion, which is a good thing. It means that we're addressing things as we move through. So congratulations on your work. You've stepped into a mighty role and you're doing a great job. Thank you, Trustee Esteen. Trustee Jensen, I see a hand. Uh, thank you, Dr. Chair. Um, Dr. Kilsworn, you may have mentioned this, I apologize if I missed it, but you talked a little bit about coaching. What about um, other like types of um, types of training, or not exactly training, but education for, for new physicians who come in, especially regarding the, um, the Alameda Health System Procedures, on, how you onboarding. Are you talking about onboarding, Trustee Jensen? Exactly. Absolutely. It, it's been identified. We've identified that that's a huge source of challenge for a lot of the physicians. I mean, we. I think we sort of. Um, even when I started here, twenty and twenty fifteen, it it felt like a little bit of a cottage industry type of place. You kind of get together with your the other three people in your specialty and you figure things out and. We're now a system that needs to function and needs to have formal processes for these sorts of things. And so um, we've, we've certainly formalized our recruiting process, which is why I think we're seeing so much more momentum there. And the next step is around onboarding. And I think there's a lot more we could do to, to improve that, um, like you're suggesting. How do we actually get people acclimated to our protocols and procedures and help them feel like there's an actual training period when they come here? That's, that's actually never happened before. So um, you know, we, we need to build that in. And um, my last question is regarding the non-EBMG physicians and providers. How how has that been going, and how do you um, how, what, what do you look towards the, to the future to improving those relationships, establishing improving those relationships, especially with um, physician providers that aren't part of EBMG. That's a great question. I think our biggest opportunity is to for me to partner closely with Dr. Tarna Bene because. Um, as we, I mean, and that's really what we've been doing over the last six months since we've both kind of been in these roles is um, just kind of getting parity around everything from um, leadership opportunities, um, you know, support, administrative support, um, uh, defining roles appropriately, uh, making sure that specialties are appropriately staffed, um, that all of those things, whether it's, you know, the hospitalists at Alameda, knowing what the hospitalists at um, Sam Leandro and the hospitals at Highland are doing and getting all those folks on the same page. I think that's, I mean, that's what I see as the biggest opportunity there. Um, Dr. Tarnabene, do you have any other thoughts? Just that the, the work that is being done in East Bay Medical Group, I think is absolutely beneficial and transferable to other parts of the medical staff as well. And already, you know, we're partnering with the medical staff office around, okay, how do we improve onboarding. And of course, the medical staff office is the hub for all medical staff across the system. So definitely, there's opportunity to, to, you know, use one part of the system to improve it to improve, improve another. Thank you. Thank you for your comments, uh, Trustee Jensen. I see no other hands. Scanning. Thank you for your report, Dr. Achilles Warren. So that will close out item D. We look forward to seeing you next month as well. Let's go to item E and try to gain, gain some time back. 
Item E1 is the QPSC committee from February 23rd, 2022. I chair that committee, so let's uh, move quickly. We did the regular work of, of, of the committee, which was approving credentialing policies and procedures. We heard our quality reports and we directly interacted with our med staff leaders. We reviewed two articles. One was the anti-vaccine patients, sorry, was an editorial. Anti-vaccine patients vent anger on healthcare workers like me. It takes a toll on care. Uh, that was sort of a tough one to read, that, that, that critical care physician from Los Angeles had been accosted by many patients who wanted ivermectin and the like. So uh, I, it is my hope that we're, we're moving away from, from that kind of uh, uh, environment, but who knows. My second article, uh, which uh, I, I will uh, tip my hat to Mr. Brown as we're going here, was entitled The Top Six standardized safety practices in US Army Medical Department treatment facilities worldwide. And um, uh, Mr. Brown was uh, previously in the Army and we, we've, we've kind of joked about uh, the Army as being a great leadership academy for some of these things, despite its bureaucracy. I just wanna run through those uh, top six things that uh, the US Army does around the world. Number one, leader daily safety briefings. Number two, safety leadership rounds. Number three, unit-based huddles. Number four, SBAR as a communication tool. Number five, institution of briefs and debriefs for surgical cases. And number six, the use of the universal protocol for final verification for every procedure. I, I found that to be a very good article out of the New England and uh, I would put that into your, to each of your libraries if you, if you run operations in this system. The marquee presentation uh, for the evening was entitled, uh, it was a funny title, I, I, uh, it was called Max Packing, Utilizing COVID Vaccine Clinics to Address Overdue Health Topics. This was given by Dr. Natalie Curtis, the Medical Director of Ambulatory Health Outcomes, and Eric Mahone, uh, PharmD, our System Ambulatory Care Pharmacy Operations. And it was basically using COVID vaccinations to do all this other stuff that we sometimes don't do and it was a it was a nice pilot, which has, has which which sort of gives us uh, uh, a little seed of thinking about how we can maximize all our patient contacts. I think it was a it was a great proof of principle kind of thing. And now the question is, and I'll, I, I would ask this uh, rhetorically to Dr. Tornabene, how do we scale this one up, uh, or is this is this something that we can do? So that's my report on the QPSC committee. Any questions? Great, because we're moving along. All right, number no, number next, um, we uh, E2 was the Board of Supervisors Board of Trustees joint meeting on March 1st, 2022. We had a number of trustees in the room. Thank you for those who attended. Uh, to those of you uh, who are in the room and the other trustees, this was our first uh, our first joint Board of Supervisor Board of Trustee meeting since April 7th of 2020. The prior meetings were on September 25th, 2018 and January 23rd, 2018. So basically this was our fourth meeting in four years. And, and, and uh, we need to be meeting more. Our own bylaws uh, uh, suggest, to us, suggest to us that we need to do this three times a year. And, and uh, we are now at a place where we can reset that relationship. A comprehensive report was given by our executives on items as financial updates, operational updates, strategic plans, 
labor relations and governance. It is my impression that we accomplished two goals uh, uh, during that meeting. One, we were able to uh, illustrate the current state of affairs at AHS under the Jackson administration for the past 13 months. The second thing I think we accomplished was we we let our, our board we let it be known our boards the AHS boards commitment to a, an effective and meaningful relationship with the board of supervisors. It's also my impression that it went very well, and I want to applause our give applause to our executive team, who all uh, hit it out of the park. Um, so I'll close that report on item E two. Trustees, any trustees who are in the room who can make comment for that day? Trustee Esteem. Uh, my comment was that oh, I sorry. really enjoyed Trustee the Jensen, then Trustee Esteem. Sorry, sorry, Trustee Esteem. My comment was I, I really enjoyed being in the room um, with the um, leadership with James and and the CAOs and um, the CIO and and uh, the COO. It was it was nice to be there. And I also want to um, give a shout out again, another one to um, Mark Amy, because we had the best technology. We had way better technology than the Board of Supervisors. Um, trustee Esteem, then Trustee Chapman. I love that about the technology. Yeah, it was very hard to know who was speaking. Um, everybody was in one room with one camera and the AHS split screen was rather impressive. Uh, and what was that room called? It had a cute name. The Neat Room. Neat, neat room. room, yes. It's a neat room. Um, yeah, I, I think that what was covered was pertinent information. Uh, the Board of Supervisors stated their pleasure at the fact that more than one person presented and they drew a distinction between past meetings, past joint meetings where there was one speaker and it was basically the CEO and we had thorough presentations that came from our chief financial officer, thorough presentations that came from other members of our leadership team talked about the improvements that are happening that are leading to, to new approaches to our strategic um, plan. And I think it was actually wonderful. I mean, it was just a, a positive meeting. There were questions that were curious about, you know, where we're going next. And overall for folks who didn't attend the meeting, uh, I think it might be interesting to attend. It was a, a, a well-timed meeting. It was only like two hours. So you can get a, a good synopsis of uh, bird's eye view. Uh, I would recommend people join. Bring some popcorn. Mm -hmm. We'll be doing it again. Thank you, Trustee Asin. Trustee Chapman, good evening. Hi, good evening, everyone. Um, thank you. Uh, I just wanted to say that I am very proud that um, to hear all the positive comments that we had at the meeting. Um, I was one of those a couple of years ago with um, Chair Bouquet and, and um, King Kimmy when we had to go out and do some assessments and some rounds and it wasn't as pleasant as we liked. And when we did our presentation to the Board uh, of Supervisors last week, they were pleasant. I, I could tell they were pleasantly surprised. The comments that were made and it was just a true testimony of um, you know, the executive leadership team and shared leadership because everyone took part in it. And 
I just have to say kudos to everyone. And I'm very proud of the presentation that was made and looking forward to uh, working with all of you. Thank you, Trustee Chapman. I, I think it was a nice moment for Alameda Health System. And um, uh, we wanna keep having those. Trustees, I've already uh, had discussion with our clerk of the board to reach out to her counterpart on the board of supervisors to get the next one on the books. Um, and we needed to be doing this three times a year. And uh, you know we're only in February, so we have a little bit of room, but know that we're reaching out to get that next one in the book so we can have advanced planning. Um, with that, um, any other comments on item E2? Thank you, trustees. Let's do item E3, the finance committee. Chair Fox, sir. Okay, we had what I thought was a fairly dense agenda for the meeting that was a week ago tonight. Um, we started out with a discussion of an article, which was a summary of the bill that had been in the legislature a few months ago uh, to establish a uh, single payer health system for the state of California and had an interesting discussion on that. Uh, our CFO, Kim Miranda, gave us a very positive financial report. Uh, volume is below budget so far this fiscal year, but above last fiscal year to date. Uh, January's net income was $5.9 million versus $1 million budgeted. Year-to-date net income is $62 million compared to $14 million budgeted. Uh, the major reasons we're so far ahead is that our year-to-date collection rate, uh, which is the amount collected as a percentage of patient gross charges is 18.2% compared with 16.6% in the budget. Uh, and also we have received major boosts from federal COVID monies and other supplemental revenues. So strong, uh, we have a strong year going after seven months. Uh, we had a, an interesting uh, update on supply chain, uh, supply chain by Greg Mitchell, who's the Director of Materials Management <clears throat> and Supply Chain. And Garrett Bensler from Euron also participated. Uh, uh, Mr. Mitchell uh, related that his goal for the department is responsiveness to never run out of things that we need. Uh, the focus is on medical equipment and medical supplies, uh, although lately uh, random supplies is where our outages have been with longer lead times and shipping them, logistic and back orders uh, impacting our organization. <clears throat> uh, Mr. Mitchell also feels that there's going to be a cultural change in the supply field. Uh, over the coming few years, he expects uh, a more of a culture of service in the future and more points of service for our employees and managers. He'd like the department to be more accommodating, and he remarked on how supply chain has a, a big impact on nursing satisfaction, which certainly I have found to be very true uh, during my healthcare career. Um, Mr. Bensler from Euron talked about the best initiative uh, main focus was on sustainability and creating an infrastructure for sustained savings. And the savings goal for materials management is three to seven million dollars annually. Our CFO then reported on the status of the best initiatives. Uh, the overtime and average length of stay initiatives are tracking red. Uh, difficulties due to the timing and the continuation of the epidemic, or the pandemic, I should say. The revenue cycle will come in ahead of budget as well uh, pharmacy initiatives. And Mark Fratsky uh, uh, chimed in that he expected to be about an 18 month process to get these uh, best projects completed. 
that we've already achieved $4.1 million of savings out of our 40 to $56 million target. We had a, uh, a quick discussion on the finance committee charter and the members are going to be sending to the clerk of the board their proposed revisions uh, to be discussed further uh, by leadership. Uh, and finally, uh, we approved the proposed renewed agreement with critical care physician partners at Alameda Hospital. Trustees, any questions? Thank, thank you, Trustee Fox. Any questions of Trustee Fox on the finance committee report? Um, uh, know that the, the CFO's report and the COO's report uh, on revenue uh, on uh, supply chain are included uh, as agenda, as, as written reports in this document for the public, items H1 and H2. Um, I know it's dense reading for those who aren't used to reading the financial documents, but try to read it because boy, it has a lot of uh, good things to say and learning to read those would be great for all of us. Mr. Jackson, sir. Thank you, Chair Bouquet. I, I would just offer that um, hmm, these are not empty calories. Um, this is not something that is driven because of the largesse of the government around COVID. That's certainly a part of our progress, but um, Trustee Fox talked about the collection percentages. And I really want to hold people there because the fact that we had budgeted to be, you know, in the mid 16s and we are collecting now, you know, a little more than 18% on the dollar, that, that's a significant difference. And I've talked to Kim Miranda and she believes that with the improvements that we have made in our revenue cycle, that that's sustainable. So that's not something that is going to go away, presuming that we continue the, the progress that's been made. So I really, I have a high degree of confidence that we are on the right trajectory from a, you know, a rev cycle perspective. And I attribute that to certainly to Kim and her team, as well as to our work um, with the Huron team. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Jackson. Trustee Esteem. Uh, I wanna say hats off to our finance chair. Thank you, Alan. I am so grateful that you are our finance chair and uh, bring your many years of financial expertise to the role. And I loved the discussion about uh, AB 1400 and am excited to see what we talk about next month. So let's keep the discussions coming. Thank you. I hope I passed my probationary period. Yeah. <laughs> All right, team. With that, we're going to close out item E and we're going to go to item F, the consent agenda. Uh, there are four items on the consent, consent agenda. Before entertaining a motion to approve the entirety of the consent agenda, are there any items that need to be removed for discussion? So, uh, uh, Council, I can make a motion as chair, correct? I, I make a motion that we pull out item F2 for discussion since it's a new item on our standard consent list and further, there are no supporting documents for it. <laughs> so given that, can I, uh, I'll actually I, make I a motion. I move the other items on the consent calendar. I'll yes, second. Trustee Friedman. <laughs> and, and did someone second it? They did. I did. So Madam Clerk, can you uh, uh, do a roll call for approval of items F1, F3, F4? I sure can. Trustee Banerjee. Aye. Trustee Bouquet. Aye. Trustee Blue. Aye. Trustee Chapman. Aye. Trustee Esteen. 
Aye. Trustee Fox. Aye. Trustee Friedman. I think you said aye. I think I must have missed it. Yes. And uh, Trustee Jensen. Aye. And I believe Trustee Splendorio is not in the room, but the motion does pass. Thank you. I vote aye. My screen froze for a uh, second. <laughs> thank you, okay. Trustee Friedman. Yeah. We thought you were just putting a poker face on. <laughs> um, okay. I've been known to do that. Here, here's item F2. F2 is a new one and, it, and it's entitled Receiving Minutes from EBMG for 2-17-22. In follow-up to what we just did, we're trying to create a better line of sight to EBMG. So starting this month, the intent was to uh, see this as a consent agenda item. Uh, EBMG will continue to approve the minutes of its meeting, but to increase transparency and the in spirit of increased governance responsibility, AHS will now receive those minutes after EBG, EBMG approval, so we all know what has transpired at recent EBMG meetings. Unfortunately, uh, I, I, uh, there, uh, I think there was a, some cross signals. We were not able to receive the EBMG minutes, so going forward at the next month, uh, their minutes will be coming to us and we're receiving them. We're not approving them, we're receiving them because EBMG has approved them uh, and, and they could do some action separately. So we wanna be able to evaluate that. So that's a go forward. So council, we don't need to make a, a, an item on this because there's nothing to approve. Is that correct, sir? Yes, you, you can simply set it aside as the chair. Thank there you, we sir. Go. We will set aside item F2. And with that, we, have, we are through item F and I am, 15 minutes behind, but we'll get it back. Uh, this is on you, General Counsel. You gotta get us some time here. Item G1 is the resolution for teleconferencing pursuant to AB 361. Counsel, the floor is yours. Thank you, Chair Bouquet. So uh, we've, we've made, uh, uh, we've tailored the language in this resolution to allow for hybrid meetings moving forward. Uh, we've spoken with our infection control director. Uh, we can now have meetings on site, but uh, there are a number of restrictions such as uh, uh, having to wear masks and socially distancing. Um, we're looking into that. We're looking into space where we could, uh, where we could possibly meet and also having all of the IT capabilities um, there. So uh, but, uh, even when we go back to, uh, even when we go to hybrid meetings, we will still need to continue to approve this resolution uh, because uh, uh, our infection control directors recommended that we uh, continue to have the public uh, participate remotely via Zoom. Um, so, so that's where we are uh, with this. And council, we need to approve this on a monthly rolling basis, correct, sir? Correct, until the uh, governor lifts the um, emergency order. Okay. Trustees, do you have any comments or questions? There's actually a resolution included in your packet. Um, so I'll wait for any questions and then I'll entertain a motion to approve the, the reso as, Dr. as our council refers to him that he worked so hard on. Trustee All right, Freeman. I'm tired of waiting. I move the resolution. I, there you go. Can I get a second? A second. Thank you, Trustee Banerjee. Madam Clerk? Yes, uh, Trustee Banerjee. Aye. 
Trustee Bouquet. Aye. Trustee Blue. Aye. Trustee Chapman. Aye. Trustee Steen. Aye. Trustee Fox. Aye. Trustee Friedman. Aye. Trustee Jensen. Aye. And Trustee Splendoria is not in the room, but the motion does pass. I'm here. Aye. Oh, hi. You're here now. Sorry. Trustee Splendoria, what's your vote? Aye. Thank you so much. The motion passes. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Council, for getting us to that. All right, items G2 and G3 are sort of the marquee presentations for the evening. The first one is item G2. This is the Homeless Health Center Strategic Plan. I'm very happy to introduce, again, uh, Dr. Damon Francis. He's our medical director of the Homeless Health Center, and he's here to talk to us about this plan. Uh, good evening, Dr. Francis. Good evening. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I have to say, having been through this type of a meeting last night, I really appreciate uh, Trustee Friedman's style on that. Uh, <laughs> um, so uh, <laughs> um, I'm joined tonight by uh, Mark Smith, who's a member of our co-applicant board, who's here in the room with me, socially distanced, as well as Loretta Medellin, who's our board chair, and Neha Banger, who's also um, a member of our board. And um, what we'd like to do is just give you an overview really of the health of people experiencing homelessness and, and uh, our connection with them at Alameda Health System, a brief overview of the health center and our co-applicant board, then jump into our strategic plan and the goals. And I think the last time I was here, um, Chair Bouquet, you said, uh, what do you need and come back when you need something. And so at the end, we're, we're asking for some things uh, you know, as prompted last time. Um, so I'm just going to jump right in, um, and then I'll hand over the presentation at a couple points to uh, other members of our co-applicant board. Um, I just wanted to ground us in an understanding, you know, that uh, people experiencing homelessness in Alameda County suffer from really high rates of disabilities and chronic diseases. So we're talking about 42% of this population having a disabling condition. This really happens across disease categories. It's not a specific specialty that's affected. It's, it's across, you know, the spectrum of, of health outcomes. Um, and then I think the other really critically important, you know, uh, uh, place to ground us, you know, especially as we have all these conversations as a system about racial health equity is that black people experience by far the highest burden of homelessness here in Alameda County. And this is a product of, you know, those intersecting uh, um, elements of history, you know, that, that, that we talked about in the, in the opening um, in the, with the article around moral determinants of health, the housing structure, the criminal justice structure, the education structure all of those things disadvantage uh, African-Americans and they combine really in kind of this final common pathway of homelessness um, to, to yield this really striking disparity where nearly half the people who are homeless in Alameda County are African-American in spite of the fact that we make up just 11% of the population. Um, so here at Alameda Health System, um, homeless patients are really disproportionately seen in our emergency departments and our hospitals. Um, we have over 4,400 homeless patients last year that we saw in emergency departments and hospitals that we didn't see at all in, uh, in primary care or in specialty care or in an outpatient setting at all. And, you know, as one example, I have a patient um, who in the last three months has had five appointments with me. He's made one of them um, and he's been seen in the emergency room seven times. He's a patient who's homeless with traumatic brain injury with uh, alcohol use disorder and uh, multiple physical illnesses. And it's just, you know, very, very challenging for him to make an appointment. And so I think what I wanna, you know, a theme that you'll hear throughout the presentation is that this idea of serving people primarily through appointments 
in the settings where we all want to be seen, we all want to be seen by our doctor in our doctor's office, right? It's not a great thing for most, uh, most people in our world to go to the hospital, um, that the appointment creates a huge barrier for that, for people experiencing homelessness or who are struggling with, you know, any kind of challenge in, in life. Um, so our homeless health center is really um, about trying to solve that issue. And our mission was updated as part of our strategic planning process. Um, and I'll read it. Grounded in human rights and social justice, the Alameda Health System Homeless Health Center provides comprehensive and accessible services to ensure that all Alameda County residents, regardless of their current housing situation, can be physically, mentally, socially, and spiritually healthy. And this, um, this has language that, uh, that comes from the National Healthcare for the Homeless uh, Council mission. Um, which uh, I think expands from the previous mission that, you know, that's, that's just a couple sentences in, in our um, bylaws, um, really to emphasize both social justice and public health as really foundational principles in the work that we do as a homeless health center beyond the delivery of healthcare services. Um, just to review, I think our homeless health center, because it's kind of a virtual center, can be difficult to understand. So I appreciate Dr. Williams for shouting out to the wellness centers uh, earlier. Um, our homeless health center overlaps with four of our outpatient sites, the wellness centers at Highland, Eastmont, Hayward, and Newark. Um, we saw last year 3,500 unduplicated patients experiencing homelessness or housing insecurity. Those patients are identified usually through a housing screening process uh, in, in registration, although they can be identified in other ways as well. And, um, and uh, really, as a clinician sees the patients, they may not know whether someone has housing insecurity or not um, at the point in time that they're seeing the patient. Um, we have some mechanisms now through Epic of, of sharing that information, but this is a really cohesive population. And at one visit during the year, a person may be experiencing housing insecurity. At a visit later, they may not be experiencing housing insecurity. So this is a pop there's no such thing as a fixed population of quote unquote, the homeless. And I think that's a really important thing to understand about our, about our health center. Um, so we did have about 19,000 visits last year. Um, the budget is $8.2 million, um, about 62 FTE. And again, it's kind of a virtual center that represents about 6% of um, ambulatory services. So now I'm gonna turn it over to uh, my um, cab member, Mark Smith, to talk a little bit about the co-applicant board. And let me see, uh, Mark, are you off mute there? Yeah, can you hear me? They can probably hear you through my microphone. So let me mute myself and then I'll come and unmute you. Um, good evening. I just wanted to say um, the faces you see here, that picture here, uh, are people uh, who make up the co-applicant board uh, who represent a diversity, uh, similar diversity of the patients uh, we serve uh, all members uh, of our board have voting rights, uh, with the exception of Dr. Uh, Francis, uh, but he is uh, still a member. Uh, this body shares the responsibility with the Board of Trustees in governing the health center, including approving the budget and supervising the director. This board was established in um, 2019 uh, with, co with a co-applicant applicant agreement that lays out the principles for our collaboration um, together. Uh, our board has a strong desire to develop a strong method or methods 
of institutional collaboration going forward with the Board of Trustees. Um, I have no reason to believe that the uh, Board of Trustees does not feel the same uh, if we are to be successful in our mission. And so I, um, so I urge you to allow us um, not only tonight, but in the future uh, to have ongoing um, conversations with you uh, as we move forward in this mission. It's not the neat room over here. So I'm just making sure that you guys only hear one of us at a time through the microphone. Um, thank you so much for, uh, for that, Mark. Um, and we'll come back to this point, I think, about institutional collaboration, which is part of the asks. Uh, Trustee Fox, I can see you have your hand raised. Do you want to ask a question now? Yes, I'm just, just definitional. If you could tell me what co-applicant board means. Sure. The, the co-applicant refers to the fact that in, in conjunction with the Board of Trustees and Alameda Health System, our board is an applicant to receive HRSA funding. Um, in our case, we apply to the county to receive that funding as a subrecipient. And without the co-applicant board, we would not qualify to be a federally qualified health center because we would not meet the governance requirements um, of, the, of the Section 330 statute. Okay, so I, I guess every FQHC clinic has a co-applicant board? Every FQHC clinic has a compliant governing board. Okay. Public FQHC clinics that are also required to have some other structure as we are, do have a co-applicant board that makes them also meet the governing re requirements for HRSA, if that makes okay. sense. Thank you very much for that. So this is a really common arrangement up and down the state of California. In most counties uh, here in the Bay Area, there are only two boards. In our community, because of the arrangement between the Board of Supervisors and the Board of Trustees, we also have a Healthcare for the Homeless Commission, which is the co-applicant board for the Board of Supervisors, who are also not a HRSA compliant board. So we've been required by HRSA to have four governing boards for the element of the scope that governs Alameda Health System's uh, homeless health center. Thank you. So, um, you know, I think that's a really important takeoff point for talking about why, like what's four boards really, what's the point of all that? Um, and the, the structure was really set up in the 1960s as part of the African-American struggle for civil rights. Um, so the picture on the left is, uh, is Jack Geiger, um, who's a, a medical doctor, and John Hatch, who's a doctor of public health, um, the son of a preacher and a social worker who actually developed the governance model and developed this model to really ensure that the people most affected by the services were the ones who are in charge of governing the institution. So there's a 51% consumer majority on the board, which our board meets. Um, there's a requirement that the services are planned and developed on the basis of community needs. So on the basis of those issues that were cited in that Don Berwick article, not on the basis of service line needs. And I think what's really important to understand is that uh, the only medical service that where an increased supply is associated with increased health equity and increased population health is primary care. So in most places, when increased supply of hospitals and increased supply of specialty services are not associated broadly with an increase in population health. 
So this structure was really set up to be grounded in primary care and to be grounded in public health as a way to serve all, regardless of the ability to pay. And HRSA is really, really keen in their oversight of this program to ensure that there is a structure where consumer voice is, is put in. I mean, to the, to, the, to the extent that they mandate this, even of public entities, which have other responsibilities to the public. So at, at our health center, a, a major focus is access. And I just wanted to take you through, you know, an, a, a kind of baseline current state that, that was um, really important in our strategic planning process. So here in this chart, you can see on the left side, um, the different sites of care. So many of you are familiar with the mobile health clinic, the van that goes to homeless shelters and drop-in settings, that's the first line. The bridge clinic is our clinic on the Highland campus that provides medically assisted treatment to people with um, substance use disorders. And then, you know, the other services that we provide. And you can see going across um, that uh, in the mobile health clinic and the bridge clinic, 75% of the patients we serve in mobile health are people experiencing homelessness and 30% fully of the people we serve in the bridge clinic are people experiencing homelessness or housing insecurity. And the way that we've been able to make these settings so welcoming and accessible is through drop-in services, through community health workers and through some other measures. So I think that's the good news is we here at Alameda Health System know how to make our services accessible to people experiencing homelessness. We do it in two of our locations very, very well. I think the challenging news for us is our largest sites, our largest outpatient sites don't really use these approaches. We primarily have an appointment driven system, um, which is, you know, as I, as I mentioned for my patient earlier, a major barrier to people who have many, many other competing priorities getting into care on time. And so you can see in our primary care and our specialty care and our urgent care services where, where we really serve lots and lots of people including lots of people experiencing homelessness, those percentages are down in the three, 4% range. So this was kind of the reality we're wrestling with coming into our strategic planning process. And, you know, as you all are having your retreat coming up, we had a retreat with our co-applicant board members, you know, a major majority consumer board that really understands these issues from multiple different perspectives, including really importantly, from the perspective of being served as a patient in our system and drop-in access, on-demand access was a theme that surfaced really early and, and really often in our strategic planning process. Beyond that, I think strategic planning really changed the questions that you know, we're asking as a homeless health center, both as a, you know, as a staff and as a co-applicant board. Um, I think we've often asked with the mobile health program, with Bridge Clinic, I mean, even the name of Bridge Clinic, how can we help this person get from this low barrier setting to our regular primary care? And, and there's just a huge drop off in people actually being able to do that. And I think after we delved into these issues more deeply, saw some other models around the country, I think we, we started asking ourselves instead, how can we best meet all this person's health needs wherever they are? If they're in the ER, if they're in the bridge clinic, if they're on the mobile van, can we do more things for people? The max packing approach, you know, in some ways as, that you all discussed about uh, at QPSC. I think secondly, we really shifted our focus from thinking about our federal grant primarily to thinking about the entire scope of the services that we provide and all the revenue that's available, for, that should be available, that is available, that may be available, that we haven't really considered in terms of designing this service and wanting to really focus in that area um, over the next three years. And then finally, I think uh, we really changed from thinking about referring into housing and referring into you know, other resources to how we can really design more collaborative structures with the complex care management team, which I know you all have heard from, uh, you know, on the board of trustees, 
from the Office of Homeless Care and Coordination, which is you know this office within Healthcare Services Agency that really has been charged with uh, which leading a strategic approach to homelessness across our county. So with that, I'll, I'll just jump into our, our goals. Um, and these are overarching conceptual goals. The report itself has detailed milestones for the first year of the plan. Um, and you know, we fully expect as a co-applicant board to be amending and changing this you know, as, our, as circumstances around us change. But our first goal is to maximize the care that people experiencing homelessness receive for acute and chronic illnesses at the earliest opportunity and in the locations and settings that work best for them. So this is, this is offloading the appointment as much as possible and saying here at the Bridge Clinic, how much can we do for you in, the, in a circumstance where you're able to drop in? On mobile health, can we add to the scope of mobile health and include dental services that we can provide in the community as the number one self-reported need that people experiencing homelessness have? Um, our second goal is to ensure sustainable funding and infrastructure to support existing and expanded services. So here I have some of the funding sources that we receive, you know, the health program of Alameda County, we as Alameda Health System receive. Measure A, um, the um, QIP program, the Quality Incentive Pool program, and now the new CalAIM program from uh, healthcare services. We as a co-applicant board <laughs> approve a budget every year. We're approving a strategic plan. But I have to say we have never provided input into the allocation for these revenue sources, um, even though we're responsible for guiding and directing the services we provide to people experiencing homelessness. And so I think this is something, you know, as you heard from Mark earlier, wanting to institutionalize our partnership, you know, we've been developing as a board. We're only three years into this. We, this is our first strategic plan. So I think it's not, it's not to, you know, look backwards and shame us, but I think looking forward um, we really need to make sure that we as a governing board um, at least provide input into the budgets that we then have um, authority and responsibility to improve, to approve. And then I'm going to turn it over to uh, our chair, Loretta Medellin, to talk about our third goal, which is really close to her heart. Mm, thank you, Dr. Francis. Um, providing health care to the homeless population is extremely important, as you all know. But unless we also collaborate with other organizations um, to get these people into housing, um, it really, it, it's not as effective as it's meant to be. And we, I think, are lacking that. That's one area that we can definitely improve in, and, and we hope to improve in over the next uh, couple of years with the mobile health clinic. We wanna collaborate more and build strong uh, relationships with um, other, the health advocates and the complex care management teams and uh, possibly even um, hiring more people to uh, specifically work on these housing needs and um, needs outside of just general healthcare. Um, so that's, that's really, it's very important to me. I think that housing is, without health is, is nothing and health without housing is nothing. They, they go hand in hand. You have to have one to have the other for it to be successful. Okay, Damon. <laughs> Damon, you're on, uh, you're on uh, mute. Yeah, Damon. mute. 
sorry. So coming to the coming to the things we really hope for in you know in, in collaborating with the board of trustees moving forward. Um, we want to ensure that there's patient representation and governance and decision making. And I think that could take, could take a number of different forms. I know that we're in the process of the Board of Supervisors making decisions about the governance structure moving forward. But I think you know, Mark has, has suggested multiple times that we have um, regular collaborative meetings of the Board of Trustees and the co-applicant board. I think certainly that would be um, something that, that we would support. I think you know, looking at either for the board of trustees or for the successor body that's developed via this governance process, having patient representation on either the board of trustees or that successor body is another idea that I think is worth exploring. Um, and you know, I think even those two things alone will not be enough. I think this type of representation needs to be distributed throughout the organization. You know, Loretta served on advisory boards within um, within Alameda Health System. That um, you know that have uh, uh, really contributed a lot to how we design our services, you know, in, in in primary care. And I think we need to we need to look at those. A lot of them have collapsed and compressed because of the COVID pandemic. We need to make sure we're investing in bringing those back. Um, and and, um, and so I think this is an open dialogue. But those are some ideas I think about how we might begin that. Um, the second thing is that we really need to put our money where our rhetoric is on health equity. The homeless population is dramatically disproportionately African-American and disproportionately disabled. And for the only way to access a doctor in most of our system to be through an appointment, I think is, is a major barrier that we have to rectify in some way. And so we're really focused in the short term on moving the bridge clinic from being something that's a research project. It's successful. It works. It's not supposed to be research funded anymore. This is supposed to be something that we do as a system that we know we're gonna sustain moving forward. And we have to figure out how we do it at a level that meets the needs within our population. And then I think we have to go beyond that and think about where else do we need drop-in access in our system? How can we put proposals together? How can we identify the potential revenue sources? And how can we make those things happen? And then, and then finally, I think we need to clarify what we mean by serving all. I think there are kind of two ways inside the health equity conversation that universalism works, right? One is everyone home. That's the name of our umbrella organization for ending homelessness here in Alameda County. Um, and it, the name itself centers the idea that some people don't have homes and it's our job to find those excluded folks and make sure that they have homes. That type of universalism is really focused on equity. And I think that's the spirit in which the Alameda Health System uh, mission was adopted. There's another sense, which is all lives matter. Someone says black lives matter. And then someone right after says all lives matter. And that, universalist use is a way to decenter actually the people who are most marginalized and excluded and and i think i'm concerned hearing some usages of serving all inside of our system recently that seem to tend kind of in that direction you know who else are we responsible for providing care for when i think we know as trustee Banerjee said we're complicit in a system that's been really designed to be nearly inaccessible for outpatient care uh, for, for many of our most vulnerable neighbors um, so with that, I'll conclude the presentation. I want to make sure we have a chance to hear from uh, Neha Banger as well and, and hear more from Loretta and, uh, and Mark as we go forward. I think, Mark, you want to add something? Yes. Um, let, me, let me get you off mute here, Mark, and then uh, so that we're not both talking at the same time. You're good. Uh, yeah, um, this is Mark. Uh, this is Mark Smith again. I just want to simply say uh, one thing. Um, the um, 
we're in the we're in the business of uh of of healing um that is what i believe ahs is about is about he the healing of people um and simply um the omission the omission of the omission of of saying uh, of not being specific about who what we're about and who we actually serve by by omission um actually does hurt us as an organization i think we should be uh bold and upfront as to who we represent and and uh what we're about in terms of uh re representing um everyone that we serve uh no matter of background race or any other um or or any other um uh measure that we that we might uh make judgments about uh the people we serve and so therefore i i think it's important uh that um to ignore uh this segment of, of which we serve or to say nothing in support of is simply also the admission of providing the actual care that we uh, are charged to actually give and so i think that's important for us to think about. Dr. Francis, Trustee Blue has her hand up. Great, would you like me to steer the conversation, uh, Chair Bouquet, or do you wanna keep doing that? Uh, uh, Dr. Francis, I'll give it to you. Uh, <laughs> okay. So if, if, you, if, you'll, if you'll lead us uh, through this agenda item. Great. So I see Trustee Blue and then uh, Trustee Banerjee, I see has her hand up. And then uh, Lynette Lee, who's a member of the Healthcare for the Homeless Commission for the county. So those are the next three that I see. Trustee Blue, you're on mute. Yep. <clears throat> so I want to thank you for this report because um, it really does shine a light on what the, uh, the big issues that we have to face within the homeless uh, community. And I also agree that, you know, black, all, black Lives Matter, and then somebody says all lives matter. But I think if we use the data, right, that shows almost 50% yeah. of the homeless population is African American, we can't ignore that. So I always say, look at what the numbers say, the numbers don't lie. And that's where you need to put your focus in. And then the question I had, just in terms of uh, more access to drop-in visits, I don't know. If, I don't know if we coordinate with the public health department, because, and I don't know if there's more public health clinics that are scattered throughout the country, because they, I mean, not country, the county, but because they tend to be more accessible to the community. And I don't know if that's the same here in Alameda County, and if there's a way we can work with the public health department to, I don't know, whether it's one day a week or whatever we decide that we can work out with the public health department, that the public health clinics also act as drop-in sites for the homeless because they're never gonna get well if they don't see mm -hmm. physicians and nurses, right? This a never-ending uh, thing. And then um, where the homeless are, we see them right under freeways and homeless uh, encampments, 
But this is what I learned in Fresno County, having worked with Fresno County healthcare workers, mental health county workers used to go to the freeways where the dividing, where the divider is, right? And they're all in those bushes that nobody dares goes to see them except for the mental health workers of that county. And then bringing in physicians with them to do that. But it's, they're all over the place and we just don't see them all except what's in front of our face. Thanks, maybe I'll just quickly address the point around the public health clinics, um, cause I think that's an important thing to clarify. So in 1998, um, you know, Alameda County Medical Center was part of Alameda County and the healthcare for the homeless program was part of the public health department. Um, and then they split and, and we were the public health clinics and are the public health clinics to some extent at Alameda Health System. Um, the county does have specific contracts with um, community uh, clinics lifelong, La Clinica, et cetera, um, to provide some street outreach services as well um, for people experiencing homelessness and to provide medical care for people experiencing homelessness. But I know from you know, working closely with the Healthcare for the Homeless program that they would very much appreciate if Alameda Health System could provide quite a bit more of that access as well, that it's not nearly enough to meet the need that's grown over, over a period of time. And I think uh, we'll hear from uh, Trustee Banerjee and then uh, Lynette Lee, who's a member of the commission, maybe can address that more. Um, mm -hmm. Trustee Banerjee, please go ahead. Um, Dr. Francis, I mean, I could listen to this all day and I, I, I would still be, but I want to defer to uh, Lynette Lee because you had your hand up earlier than me and then you had also mentioned Neha Bangar might want to speak. So I, I'll, I'll just defer and then um, ask after that. So go ahead. Thank you. I, um, good evening, um, trustees and, and staff. I, as uh, Dr. Francis has said, I'm a member of the Alameda County Healthcare for the Homeless Commission. And um, first of all, I just want to thank all of you and Dr. Francis and other staff for the close partnership that we've really had in working to meet the needs of the homeless. Um, the Drop-in centers and the mobile vans are incredibly important to reaching the homeless. ACHCH also um, oversees multiple, I think they're, we're at 13 now, street health teams throughout the county that goes to where the homeless are, that goes to the encampments. And the ultimate goal is to build the trust so that eventually they can come to um, a bricks and mortar clinic, but knowing that often takes time. So the, the mobile health van, the drop-in centers, the street health teams, all of these are very important to meeting the needs of the homeless. And um, as Dr. Francis has said, that 47% of the homeless being African American is incredibly high. Um, for Native American, it's a high percentage of their population. Um, so I think it's really important that we look at that, especially and see how we serve these populations as well as others, but especially look at these. Um, 
I just want to say that, you know, I agree and support the strategic plan. And um, we've learned, we, our commission now has three members who are also on the cab, um, a number of whom have had experience being homeless. Um, so it's really important. Their practical knowledge of what works is very critical to how we develop our plans and strategies for serving them. And I appreciate that the county, the state, the cities are all making a concerted effort to housing people, but the healthcare also is so critical for going hand in hand with that and um, making sure that both of those happen so that people can fully stabilize. Thank you. Thanks so much, Lynette. I think, uh... Trustee Banerjee had wanted to uh, give Neha Banger, uh, a member of our CAB, a chance to speak. Neha, if you're um, interested, I think now would be the moment. I think you're on mute. Sorry, if you hear some uh, squealing in the back, it's my uh, nine-month-old. I forget how old she is because she's moving so quickly. Um, and. Uh, yeah, we're, we really believe in the in the work that we do, and uh, and it is critical that we are able to provide more service uh, because there is definitely a very very high need, and uh, as as we were mentioning, the appointments are a very big barrier for for people who are coming in and often don't receive the services that they need because of that barrier, and the the more that we can do to reduce that the greater the chance that we're actually able to address the real needs of people who are coming in and provide them comprehensive whole person care. Um, and really we need to be moving in that direction. Um, and uh, you know, the drop-in model is really, I think the way to move forward. And ultimately it's good to get uh, them into primary care and uh, folks into primary care. But before we do that, it's, it's necessary to get them the care that's needed at the time so that we're able to then move to you know, what's needed next after that. Thanks. Thank you, thank you, Neha. Um, and again, thank you for that really, um, you know, timely um, update, uh, Damon, and the fact that our AHS is doing its strategic planning at the same time, this is absolutely the time to be able to do this. Uh, this is such a perfect, uh, you know, uh, pertinent bookend to how we began our meeting with the moral determinants and um, and then talking. I know that um, Dr. Tonabene, you spoke about uh, the EBMG governance and how sometimes bright sp spots somewhere need to be disseminated and uh, adopted in other parts parts of uh, the system and the co-applicant board is just that because as much as we might have like advisories and others when you rest some power in, in folks who have lived and learned experience and bring that we, we can fully sense what's important to us and so I hope that um, I, I, I think this should be a commitment um, I speak for myself uh, and um, for our board to um, to work with the board to see that uh, these this is central to what we do because if we are not centering the margins if we are not looking at how we might use our resources and um, have a more seamless 
integrated approach. Uh, just some of those strategic questions that shifted from, you know, how might we use the revenues in different ways? Because the more there are just so many cho choice points that we have to be able to do this uh, better. And when we have the resources and we have this planning process going on, the voices, the uh, influence and, and the power of our um, um, members of the co-applicant board and the uh, other um, our, our um, yeah, community members who experience homelessness have to be part of this um, uh, process and this has to be kind of baked into it so it hasn't shouldn't be a one and done so one of the things that we probably need to do through this process is also to figure out like how might we do more of these. So again, Dr. Francis will be looking to you. Your leadership has been exemplary. And I remember the time when Hursa came for the visit and we formed the like the development and the design of the co-applicant board. But how might we, other than these um, periodic updates, have more of a back and forth between our board or our staff and and and, and the board would be really important to explore. So I made some notes during this for follow-up uh, to make sure that we kind of um, do this, uh, uh, create a process because equity is not just the outcome, it's the journey and the process as well. And so having this be baked into our system um, is really key. Thank you so much. Yeah, I really just wanna echo the comment that you made and, and Lynette made uh, that it's, it's transformative to have patience in decision-making. It centers exactly the right issues. Um, and, you know, for me, it's really shifted the focus in the way those questions have shifted. You know, this idea, we had this strong mental model of, oh, you see someone in this Lowberry setting, you connect them somewhere else. And it, that's not going to do it. <laughs> and, and we heard that back. Right. And, and it was centered in our conversation and dialogue. So for me personally, I think I've had the same experience, you know, that, that you and Lynette described. I think I, I want to be respectful of the um, time allotted. I see that we have uh, Shannon Smith and then Trustee Esteen. Um, Shannon from the commission. And then I think Trustee Esteen, you can be the final word and, and we'll hand it back to you, knowing that this conversation will continue. Um, Shannon, go ahead. All right. Can you all hear me okay? Beautiful. Uh, so I'm Shannon Kipernan. I'm a registered nurse and part of the Alameda County Healthcare Foundation the last couple of years. Uh, definitely shout out to the Street Health Outreach Team. Uh, Shannon, you are like echoing a little bit or coming in and out. I don't know if there's something you can do with your audio. Switch to, is that any better? Perfect. Okay. Sorry about that. So Shannon Smith Bernadine, registered nurse. I've been on the commission for a couple of years now with healthcare for the homeless. Uh, been a pleasure to work with Dr. Francis and Heather at our monthly meetings. Uh, did want to kind of double down on the drop in access. And even when appointments happen, many times our clients are not prioritized for them. I've literally mm. sat in waiting rooms for two and a half hours after an appointment is scheduled when someone showed up in time just to wait to get them into an appointment to see the physician. And, but one of the parts of the group that I want is also as mentioned, the behavioral health and dental, super lacking any additional support uh, AHS can do, and we will be there to help support also and kind of troubleshoot around it. But especially as part of the patients being part of the decision-making process, et cetera, one quick comment on the AHS in general and the county, and we've been definitely working on this, is 
creating low barrier hiring practices because someone should not need a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, and all these type of things to get hired into any position within any system that serves individuals who are homeless. One year on the street can tell, can be so educational and having these individuals be banned from working at many of our facilities is a huge detriment to the population we serve. If you really wanna serve the 47% of people who are African-American, who come from poverty, who are homeless, we have to bring in those people who also have gone through that themselves, which means they potentially have a lack of previous employment that looks good on a resume. They may have histories of in the criminal justice system. They may have histories in recovery. And so I really, really encourage everyone as hiring practices. I know lots of us are going for the DEI and inclusivity, but that also means creating a hiring system to bring people into this realm, not just on boards, commissions, but on the ground, on the floor, in the offices uh, to help our population. So thank you, Dr. Francis. That was lovely. And I will stop chatting and trustee esteen i think you're up and if uh if chair bouquet will permit i think trustee jensen maybe you'll get the final word there we go i got a thumbs up from him i am so full hearing this presentation thank you dr francis and shannon uh one public health nurse to the next you're right you're exactly right and uh you know i think um being on this board with Trustee Blue, I feel like sometimes our nurse input is incredibly valuable. And I know that if we had input from peers or from consumers, it would like crack things open a whole different kind of way. So, you know, I, I know Cal AIM is supposed to be doing some kind of investments and funding around peer uh, hiring, but you raise really excellent points about how to bring people in through re-entry, through job development, through, you know, we have a hiring crisis. And there's lots and lots of ways to bring people in and offer them living wage jobs um, in our health system that would be life-changing and also expand care. So thank you for saying that. That isn't even what I was going to ask, but I'm very curious about how um, the, the outreach that is being done sounds so comprehensive and appointments are absolutely a barrier. What is the, the model that we're hoping to achieve? Like, is it just make sure that we bring people in so that our system stops making things appointment dependent? Or is there ever a desire to create one-stop shops so that folks can actually access all the care they need under one roof? Yeah, I think in our community, you know, I think the trust clinic that's operated by Lifelong in really close partnership with uh, Alameda County Public Health is a, is a fantastic example of a drop-in one-stop shop where drop-in doesn't mean you, you let go of a continuity relationship. Those teams know those patients and those patients show up. I remember a story, um, I was part of you know, establishing that clinic and my boss, uh, Dr. Clannon at the time, went down and sat down at the clinic about six months after it opened and she came back and she said, I saw a patient there who had traumatic brain injury and memory issues and um, I started talking to him and he said, um, I don't know when I ever I have an appointment. So I just come here every day. And she, you know, she came back and she said, hey, we did it right, you know. Um, and, and so I think that model of, you know, tremendous openness and, you know, I think it's going to take detailed rethinking of the way we structure job descriptions, the way we structure information systems, the way we structure financial flows to turn something that we're doing now into a model like that 
it's not going to be a sliver of my time and a sliver of Heather's time that's going to get us there. It's, it's, it's a much bigger deal than that. And so I think that's, that's the kind of effort that we're trying to figure out how to, you know, how to get off the ground. Um, so really, really appreciate that question. Um, Trustee Jensen, and then, and then Loretta's got her hand up. So maybe I can't, I can't yeah, I got the, I got the go ahead from Taft. Thank you so much. <laughs> Trustee Jensen, please. I think Loretta wanted to respond to the last comment maybe, so I, I can wait. No, go ahead, go ahead. I just have a general comment to make, go ahead. Um, I, this may, I'm not sure if I can get my question answered. This may be for um, James or Mark, if they're, um, if they haven't stepped out for a bite, <laughs> I'm sure they're just um, muted their their video. But um, we, as I understand it, there is um, some effort to do um, to establish a, a kind of a same day clinic or a um, acute care clinic at Highland to alleviate some of the stress on the ED. Is that correct? And I wonder if uh, James, if you could comment whether that might be um, an opportunity, at least for for homeless or homeless patients to um, to have a spot where they can they can come without an appointment and be seen rather than the ED. Thank you, Trustee Jensen. You are correct that we have been pursuing that concept. It was not um, focused specifically on the undomiciled population, certainly, but. I think in the context of this conversation, it absolutely could serve the purposes that you've suggested. So um, it's it's a good suggestion for us and we will continue to work on developing that, that program. Loretta, I think you can go ahead now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I just wanted to say that um, Dr. Francis has, has been wonderful um, as a the um, chief medical officer for our board. And um, I think we're all on the same page as to what we wanna do and what we wanna accomplish as a board to help the homeless in our area get the services that they need. And the biggest thing I think we're lacking is, is staff. You know, um, The mobile clinic cannot necessarily go and, and check and see if this person got into their primary care or check and see if they got a housing appointment. You know, it's, it's just, we need more staff, which of course is going to cost more money, but it's something that needs to be thought about and, uh, and talked about when you're budgeting um, because it is very important and the numbers are getting bigger and bigger every year. That's all, thank you. Dr. Francis, um, I'll give you a closing statement if, if you have any. No, I'll, I'll leave it to my chair. Okay. Um, what I'll say is great appreciation that the space was made for this discussion. That's why Dr. Francis and I spoke about this a few months ago to give this space. Dr. Francis, I'll say this to you as, as the CEO, if you will, of, of the Homeless Health Board is, is uh, every system is perfectly de designed to achieve its results, isn't it? So, so, uh, uh, so this dysfunction has perhaps unintentional design behind it. So you just use this word detailed rethinking. I love detailed rethinking. So my, my, my ask uh, of, of you and the cab is a consideration of the hard task list of what needs to be done. Man, there's some great ideas here. Uh, what Shannon said, 
wouldn't it be great if there was a list of one to 100? And one of those items was remove a bachelor's degree as a requirement for blank. Um, one of your, your statements was, uh, or request was patient representation in governance and mm -hmm. decision-making. Mm -hmm. well, well, what exact, how would that be? Is that someone at the board level, someone at the QPSC level, someone at the executive leadership level, the ambulatory ops level, ex clinic level, et cetera? How would that be envisioned, mm -hmm. the specifics of that? Second request was AHS money on health equity. How much money is that? And what's the budget that rolls up? You need a 0 0.75 FTE to do blank, blank, and blank. You need 2.1 FTE to do blank, blank, and blank. We, our ask is 4.6752 million, right? That, so the specifics of that will help, will help us. And last, this concept of serving all. Are you asking us to change our, our, our mission statement? Because that's a consideration, right? To specify, does serving all not serve this population, that, that statement. So I, I, I ask you to consider a, a make it a make it a hundred long, Damon, and and give it specifics. And if you don't ask, you don't get, right? So mm -hmm. often. So so create the ask. Use the, your golden pen and pretend like you could, if you could have whatever <laughs> you want, try that. And then and then let's talk again. Is that okay, Dr. Francis? Cab? You, you broke up a little bit for the last of what you said, but sound, sounds okay to me. I think our, our plan has some detailed milestones in it. We've submitted a pro forma for the bridge clinic. We are making those asks inside of our system. Um, and I think we'd appreciate you know, some tracking at this level um, to follow up on those. Um, but um, we'll, we'll definitely keep coming with the details. Thank you, sir. With that, uh, everybody, we will close out item G2. Thank you for that robust dialogue and uh, shame on me for my time management projections. Um, let's go to item G3. This is also another important one. This is the proposed statewide actions regarding ambulance offload delays. This is gonna be led, I believe by CAO's Harding of San Leandro and Alameda Hospital and CAO uh, Mark Brown of Highland. Good evening, sir, sorry for keeping you waiting. Thank you, Chair Bouquet, and thank you, trustees. Uh, Mario, do you want to go, or would you like me to, to leave? We never really planned out who was going to do the talking. <laughs> I don't want to take any more time. So. No, yeah, no, go for it, Mark, and I will fill in. So thank you. Thanks, Mario. I appreciate it. Um, so as I was alluded to, um, about two hours ago, when the physicians gave their report around ambulance patient offload times, um, I'd like to give you just a little bit of background on what's happening in the community, um, why this affects Alameda healthcare system, um, and what we're doing around this. Um, so I'll be brief um, in my report around this. So ambulance patient offload times, uh, we'll refer to them as APOT from here on out, um, has been a concern throughout the state for a number of years. Uh, the goal for the state is to have ambulances offload emergency departments in 20 minutes or less. Um, that allows EMS rigs to be able to get out into the service again so that they can respond to 911 calls. Um, as you saw probably on the news, um, ABC Channel 7 did something on Falk where um, Falk has been fined hundreds of thousands of dollars by the county for not meeting their um, contracted 911 response times. Um, they think part of that um, reason behind that is because their rigs are being kept in the ambulance or in the uh, in the hospitals instead of getting out into the community. 
Um, there might be some truth to that when you look at some of the numbers. Our latest numbers in the county around our ambulance patient offload times. Um, as a system, only 87% of the time are ambulances getting back out into the community in under 60 minutes um, after they come into the hospital. As a system, um, Alameda Health or Alameda Hospital is hitting that 93% of the time. Highland was hitting it 84% of the time and San Leandro hit it 82% uh, of the time in January. So as a result, Falk Ambulance um, put into a new ambulance offload policy that went into effect on March 1st um, that put some teeth into their policy that at 60 minutes, they're gonna do a hard offload, meaning that they're gonna place their patients um, by whatever means necessary and then leave them at uh, the facilities um, with or without staffing with or without beds. Um, this went through several iterations. They were also gonna build a hospital is what they decided not to do anymore as a result of that. Um, every single hospital is gonna be negatively affected by this. There's not a single hospital that is at 100% on being able to turn patients um, over in under an hour. Um, even the best performing hospitals in the system um, throughout the entire East Bay are only hitting about a 95, 97%. Um, and this is compounded by the, the you know, pandemic and everything else that's going on with it, as well as our 5150s, which are our psych holds and psych patients um, that are coming through the system as well, too, which are a little more difficult to place than some of the other hospitals. Um, Highland Hospital is one of the few hospitals in the system that accepts these psych patients um, like we do here. So in a proactive manner, uh, we as Alameda Health System decided to do a couple things um, to be able to mitigate these risks associated with this to both our patients and to our staff. Uh, we reached out to the state and we've, um, at least in a short-term agreement with the state, we have two paramedics um, that are associated with each one of our hospitals, our acute care facilities, that are gonna be able to take these patients that are offloaded from EMS. We've also made alternative care areas, um, as was alluded to by the physicians, um, the tents and whatnot that are out there that can give us a little more space when we need to use it. Um, we weren't really expecting to be able to put that into a test um, quite so soon, but as you heard from um, uh, Dr. Joshi, um, unfortunately over there at Alameda, they were forced to put that into effect yesterday. It worked just like we expected it to. Um, these patients were hard offloaded. The EMS, um, extra staff that we got were able to care for these patients until we were able to get them uh, nurses to be able to care for them. So it worked exactly like we wanted to. I rounded with Drew. Um, these were actually one patient from Alameda Fire and ironically one from Royal Ambulance that came via BLS from a nursing home. Um, so that one did not have a 911 rig that came to us. Um, they have the option of using a BLS for a low level EMS call when it comes to that. Um, but we, we feel that we're in a good place um, to help support these hard offloads. We feel we're in a good place to be able to support our patients and our staff around this. Um, we're still working on a process on where we can get more staff. Um, right now, the state agency um, EMS medics that are in each one of the emergency departments are free to us, um, paid for by the state. Um, and as long as um, there's a uh, state of emergency is still issued by Governor Newsom, uh, we're hoping they can continue to stay free for us and, and be able to utilize these resources. Um, but just wanted to update the board that um, we have experienced the hard offload uh, yesterday. It worked according to plan um, that we had in place. Big shout out to Mario, the physicians, uh, the ED leadership and the ED staff um, for working through this and, and giving us some good ideas around it. 
Um, and unless Mario, there's anything else, I'm trying to be as brief, um, as succinct as possible. And if the chair would allow, there's any questions, um, we'll entertain any questions um, with Mario um, chiming in if he has anything else. Yeah, yes, I think I was gonna say, Mark, you, you, uh, you covered everything uh, in detail. And um, I would just say, you know, um, just know that this, that this didn't happen because Mark and I started at Alameda. This has actually been happening for a number of years. And, and really, I think, you know, I used the term, it feels like Falk has forced the hand of the hospitals to say, you, you guys got to help figure this out um, from, from a, a flow standpoint. And, and it really seems, you know, that it's certainly has been exacerbated by the pandemic for sure. Um, and, you know, we have expressed our concerns um, for safety um, in that regard. The only other thing I'll add is um, we have been working very closely and will continue with the um, California Hospital Association's Hospital Council. Um, we have a, another powwow meeting um, actually tomorrow afternoon, just so you know, all the hospitals are coming together just to say how things have gone um, during the first week of, of this implementation of this policy. Um, and again, even though the policy um, that you have in your packets really you know, Falk is driving this, um, but um, again, it was clear in the meetings we've been in, all the other EMS agencies that said we will follow um, their um, their direction in this. So, so which explains why you know Royal and Alameda Fire uh, were the two from yesterday. So, uh, but I'll leave it there, and um, we can certainly uh, address any questions that um, that trustees have and other staff. Thank you to both CAOs. I know how hard you guys have worked in your tails off on this issue. Trustee Jensen. Um, thank you for the report. I know this has been a challenge for some time and um, I appreciate the work that's being done on it. it, it as, um, as Mario pointed out, I guess it just had, it, it, it came to, um, we had to come to decision-making because Val put this forward, but as, um, my colleagues on the board know we did hear about this um, some time ago, actually, from the from the Alameda, at least from Alameda Hospital uh, physician leadership. So um, thank you for the update. My question is regarding, well, I actually have two questions. The first one is um, there, there are 15 ED facilities in Alameda County and Falk services them all, as I understand. So how does who and how is the decision made where to transport? So they have a policy based off of, there's, there's two, two criteria they use, Trustee Jensen. One, it's patient choice. Um, so if the patient has a choice of where they wanna go, that's where they go. Um, and then there's also a destination protocol based off of what the call came in from. So if they're having a chest pain, they go to a, a hospital that can accommodate heart attacks. If they have a trauma, obviously they come to either us or to Eaton. Um, and then it's also proximity, so wherever they're closest to. Um, there's a default um, decision-making that comes with EMS. Um, they all also have their favorites that they like to go to because it's easier for them to get into. They have a better relationship with some of those um, staff at some of those facilities. Um, but it's, it's patient choice, and it's also a destination based off of what the chief complaint was and the proximity to where they're at. Thank you. Um, so that... The patient, the, the EMS choice is what makes me a little concerned. I, I would um, just want 
to wonder if in the future sometime there could be a little bit more specific requirements or, or this will come from the state EMS, I'm sure, but but it seems like it, the EMS drivers may prefer to go to a hospital that is um, where they can offload and where this has been, uh, there's a tent in the, in the driveway in the parking lot. So I don't, I don't know what how that relates, but it, I'm I'm a little bit concerned to hear that EMS makes a choice. And and um, does EMS call and beforehand they say they're on they're on route, but do they say do they ask triage if there's capacity? So there there were Highland Hospital is a base hospital, so they're required on certain things to make a call into a base hospital. So our physician can direct them where to go and what to do. They're not allowed to, oh, my screen just shifted. They're not allowed to ask um, about capacity um, because that would be kind of like a declination on our part of not being able to accept that patient and it would turn into an Impala violation um, when it comes to that. There's supposed to be a paramedic supervisor that has a 50,000 foot overview of what's going on. They're looking at ReadyNet and they can see where each one of the hospitals are at for capacity wise. And they're supposed to be helping to direct some of this ambulance traffic. When we queried um, Scott from that fault uh, ambulance on how effective this is, he, um, he said there's some opportunities around that and how well they, um, their field supervisors direct their EMS rigs into, as to where they go into what the Im Im impact is um, when it comes to that. Uh, we do have an ability at times to be able to reach out to them. When that fire happened um, at the, um, uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and we had those firefighters that had the smoke inhalation, and we got some of those other ones in there. We were able to reach out to the paramedic supervisor because we got six of those patients in just about the same time at Highland and said, hey, these are not traumas. This is smoke inhalation. This is a medical emergency. This is not a trauma. Please do not send us any more. And he went, oh, sorry. And so I started to direct some other um, rigs to some other facilities when it came to that. So we do have that ability to be able to say, hey, guys, we're getting too close to capacity. So please look elsewhere when it comes to that. And the, and the nurses uh, and physicians do leverage that um, when they get an opportunity. Um, but I think there's still some opportunity when the paramedic supervisors to be able to do some traffic control um, from the ReadyNet perspective. Thanks, Mark. I, I mean, I agree with you. And thanks for that example, because if it was more, if it was laid out, and, and more of a requirement rather than a, um, you know, a colleague to colleague phone call, then it, perhaps this would work better for all the, or all, the, all the hospitals, all the EDs. Thanks for your response. Dr. Joshi, you had a question or comment? Uh, Mr. Brown gave a very thorough answer, but I was um, willing to also answer um, anything about how ambulances arrive, if there were any other questions. That old ED nurse such a thorough there. answer. So my old, my old ED nurse there, Nikki, along with my, uh, my I know. there. <laughs> Nothing more to add. <laughs> Trustees, any other comments or questions? I I have uh, two questions for our both our CEOs. Uh, number one, sirs, both of you, have there been any quality events that we're aware, aware of related to this yet? Um, no, no, nothing. Um, nothing at Alameda at this point. Um, you know, the other thing I'll just mention real quickly too, and I'm not, you know, last Saturday, I, I was really trying to figure out which hospital would get impacted first. And I was thinking San Leandro for sure. 
initially because of the volume that they've had, um, you know, particularly this past weekend. But for whatever reason, uh, Saturday was a great day for the EDs for, for both Alameda and San Leandro because the visits were, were down uh, well more than we had, had anticipated, which really helped us. But again, to, the, to that end, this is also, again, the flow within the hospital and discharging patients certainly helped mitigate any possible uh, offload that could have happened. So just looking at this from a bigger standpoint. So, um, but anyway, yeah, so, so no quality um, ha has been impacted uh, by, by the recent event so far. And nothing at Highland either, Dr. Bouquet. Thank you, sir. And second question, uh, Mr. Brown, you made comment to the, the free support on these EMT personnel and who are helping us out, Ryan. What is our, uh, if you will, scenario B when that free support goes away? Have we made projections of cost? Would we maintain that model, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? We're, so we're working with the state, seeing what kind of contract we can continue with this. Um, we believe that with the extension of certain AFLs or all facility letters that are out there from CDPH, um, that this opportunity will continue to extend to us for as long as Governor Newsom has the state of emergency in effect. Um, short of anything else, it's, it's us just getting more staff down there, um, it, predominantly EMTs. But part of, part of the, the nice thing with this is when we have the paramedics that are caring for those patients down in the emergency department, they don't technically go into our nursing ratio because they're still a part of EMS. So I don't Excellent. have to have nurses that care for them inside that nursing ratio. If they're being cared for for the state paramedics, I don't need a nurse to care for them because they're still following under the EMS protocols and they're still running underneath that. If we use hospital personnel instead of these state personnel and state paramedics, I then fall underneath the nursing ratios and I have to have an RN that's responsible for that. Yeah. Even if they're out in the lobby, we still have to have that oversight of them out there. So that's one of the advantages we're working with the state um, around how we can continue to keep these resources with us. Um, they have not given us a direction either way, 21 days away from where this ends on if they're gonna be able to maintain these resources for us. We're, we're hoping they can, uh, but we have not heard from them in either direction yet. Thank you both of you for having a depth of understanding on this complex issue. It's, it's obvious uh, about how deep the bench is here on this. Trustee Jensen, is that a new hand up or an old hand up? Sorry, it's just one quick question regard, regarding uh, Mr. Brown's comment. And I wonder, we have the state paramedics and we have um, the offload into the, into the emergency room, the triage area, uh, the waiting room or the triage area, but what if it's a, um, a patient on psychiatric hold? How would that work now and with the state paramedics and what happens in the future as this continues if we don't have state paramedics? So, yeah, so fit, uh, patients that are in a psychiatric hold or, or in some sort of psychiatric crisis, um, we figure out some way how to make room from down the emergency department. That, that is a, a medical emergency if somebody is in some sort of um, four-point restraints, some sort of crisis where they need um, acute medical or medication when it comes to help manage their crisis. This is the issue they have over at John George as well too. This hard offload applies to John George. Um, and they were originally just going to leave patients that want a 5150 um, psychiatric hold and just walk away from it and leave them in that lobby. They have since taken that back and said they are not going to do that. Um, John George has a, a, a harder time offloading patients in less than 60 minutes. They're actually running about a 75 minute um, offload time when they hit that 60 minute mark or less. Um, 
Falk has made a promise that they will not endanger a patient's life by, by dropping them off and putting them in an unsafe situation when it comes to that. Um, we're hoping that, that they are willing to work with us and be able to do those type things. We can make spaces. There's each, each one of the hospitals or the emergency departments um, are considered suites where they're at. And that gives <laughs> some latitude on where we can legally put patients uh, per the fire marshal. If you have a suite, technically you don't have hallways in emergency department. So we're able to put more patients in the hallway temporarily to be able to care for patients. Um, so that does give us some latitude around fire and safety um, and Title 22 and some other things around where we can place patients like that. Um, but it's tough, you know, um, from some 2012 when we had the waiting room from Netflix, right? I mean, we know that we've got some flow issues when it comes to, to Highland. And that's an entirely different conversation I can pontificate upon for forever as we're working on that. Um, but but frankly, you know, Trustee Jensen, they're, they make the opportunity, they can move some patients around. This patient's stable, we'll put them over here. We'll get this patient this acute crisis in at this time. We'll take care of them. You know, our, our staff are absolutely amazing with what they do and what they um, unfortunately um, have to be accustomed to. And it's, you know, just a big shout out to what the emergency department does as well as our EMS crews. Thank you. Trustee Blue, and then we'll close this item out. Are there um, state standards of how ambulances are supposed to function? Like patient dumping is not cool. That's ridiculous. But can't we report them for violating some uh, regulatory rule? I, I'm gonna have to defer to Nilda on that one. Trustee Blue, um, I, I'm, I'm not sure what regulatory uh, wise we have as far as being able to um, use this in, in our in our favor. So I'll, I'll defer to Nilda Perez, who is much smarter than me um, around regulatory things. Um, Trustee, there are specific statutes and specific considerations about EMS transport and the Mtala statutes. There are, they do. You just went to mute, Nilda. You just went on. Pardon you me. Went on mute. Sorry. Pardon me. They are governed by statutes within the health and safety code, and they are more importantly a partner through our healthcare services administration for the county. So, but they are contracted provider. So, I think we've got opportunity among our leadership to leverage our relationship with the uh, our fellow partners who, uh, who report to the board of supervisors. There are standards around what they are able to um, to do in terms of communication with our base hospitals and with ED departments on diversionary status, but that is where that is a very that is a very hard line that is also then governed by the emergency medical services administration who they who contracts the actual transport company. So it is a complex issue, but yes, there are standards around endangering the safe and welfare of mm -hmm. patients. Um, we, we are we are on one side of, of health and safety code and they are in another category, but yes, there are standards and we would hope that they would be collaborative and focused with us on the mutual benefit and safety of our patients for the same outcome of getting them necessary care. I, I do think that this contract and I'm not quite sure I had previously heard that there were some capacity issues among Falk in, in, uh, in fulfilling that contract. So this may be a downstream effect. Okay. Well, I think we play hardball with them. They cannot dump patients like that. They just can't. Someone's going to end up dying and we're going to be in trouble. Not them, but us. 
I have, it is, it has been brought up to our California Department of Public Health licensing and certification uh, partners who govern our enforcement and our, our, beha our behaviors under Title 22. So they are aware, um, they're hoping that we will, you know, be able to mitigate and collaborate. They know that we're committed to the safe management of our patients. We immediately have communicated with them and they've actually been our advocate with I think EMSA around getting our additional resources that Mark and Mario have spoken about. Yeah, let's hold them accountable because they get a lot of money from the county. If we contract with them, they're getting a lot of money and we should hold them accountable, right? They're part of the healthcare system. Well, I'm hoping we can leverage our relationship with them. Yes, I agree. Yeah, let's, yeah, let's do that. That's anyway, I'm done. Well played, Ms. Perez. With that, we will close out. We will close out this item. This is G three. We'll go into item G four. Uh, trustees and public. This is a strategic planning update. Trustees, as we all know, and we've discussed, this is one of the most important things we do. Huron has been engaged for a few months. They're probably, I'm estimating, two thirds of their way through their project. They are planning to present this to the uh, executive leadership team at their retreat on March 18th. That's Friday, March 18th. At the top of the meeting we discussed, we'll be having our retreat on March 25th, at which we will help kind of guide the strategic plan formation. Uh, Mr. Jackson, sir. Thank you, Chair Bouquet. Um, with us this evening to provide the update are the are our Huron partners. And so um, I believe that Martin McKittrick and Leslie Grimmer on the line, is that correct? Martin, Leslie, are you here? Yes, sir, we are. Very good, I will turn to you. All right, thank you, James. Uh, we'll go ahead and, and uh, share, put our presentation up on the screen. Um, as we're getting this up, just a brief note, we have streamlined this presentation from what is in your packet um, to try to be as respectful as we can of time and to allow you all uh, sufficient time to ask questions. Uh, well, so this, what, what you'll see is an abbreviated version of what is in the packet. Thank you, Martin, I appreciate it and, and to serve you. It's 1020 in Dallas, it's 1120 in Michigan. So we're, we wanna be respectful of you guys. No worries. All right, let's do it. All right, so we'll, we'll jump into the timeline and you'll see this, this is very similar to what was presented last week uh, at the Joint Supervisors and, and Board of Trustees meeting. Um, the, the only change that we have here, um, we have, have really streamlined over the last uh, couple of days um, our materials for the ELT retreat on the 18th to focus on prioritization. Um, and I think, you know, hearing some of the comments this evening um, around what's important um, and where folks are, are focused, I think that that will really be an excellent lead into that conversation um, in terms of, of the team prioritizing. Um, we will also be making a presentation to you all uh, at your retreat on the 25th. Um, as we get through the ELT retreat uh, and get those materials um, completed over the next week or so, um, we'll have a lot more clarity around uh, where we believe we'll be going with that presentation um, with you all at that time. Uh, still on track to have a pretty robust plan complete and, and presented to the ELT by mid-April. Uh, the follow-up to that is, is to uh, begin rolling out that plan, uh, both to the, the public, the employees, uh, and, and trustees and supervisors as well. Anticipate that will begin in May, um, and we're still on track for that. Uh, as of now. So as, as we get into our definitions, this is that we're going to kind of work our way through uh, the strategic plan. We've defined pillars. 
which are, are groups or areas of, of strategic importance. Goals are, are high-level items that support or address the pillar. And actions are a little bit more specific. They tell us exactly what we're going to do. And so we'll have some examples of pillars and goals as they currently stand coming up. Um, the actions are being worked through with the ELT. Uh, we currently have uh, nearly 30 actions uh, that have been drafted. That's probably too many to successfully implement over a three to five year period. So part of the ELT's job over during their retreat is going to be streamlining those into what can we execute on and execute on well. Uh, jumping into the, the strategic framework, uh, we affectionately call this the rotunda, uh, a hat tip to uh, Leslie and the Michigan engineers uh, for coming up with that one. Um, but working out from the middle, we, we have our patients at the center um, and surrounding them are three pillars, care partners, which is our physicians and staff, the community, which speaks to how we serve our community and how we, um, we link up with our community and other resources in the community. Care, uh, which is, a, is essentially the delivery of patient care. We have key strategic enablers on the dark blue ring. Uh, and th those are values and resources that support multiple actions. So they, they kind of permeate the plan. Um, accountability, trust, and data. And, and data being a big part of that, and actionable data. Um, almost everything we do is measured somehow. And when we think about how we measure outcomes, having accurate data to support measurement is, is paramount. Uh, and then we have two all-encompassing values uh, on the outer light blue ring, uh, health equity, diversity, and inclusion, and fiscal stewardship. Um, these are, again, woven throughout the plan. Um, they, are, they are things that are um, maybe not as concrete as data, but are very, very important to the plan and, and its execution. So as we think about how the pillars are defined, uh, care partners, you know, our initial statement here, AHS values its physicians, clinicians, and staff, and seeks to grow, engage, and empower them to serve all. Uh, from the community standpoint, AHS is an anchor in its community and aligns its services to provide comprehensive continuum of care by providing needed services and being a trusted partner in its community. Care. AHS provides high-quality, patient-centered care that is accessible to all, supported by technology, and is aligned with the principles of health equity and social determinants of health. So we think about what underlies those pillars. Um, each pillar has three to four goals uh, in, the, in the current draft of the plan. As we prioritize and, and work through these, we may emphasize and de-emphasize um, some of these strategic goals. Under care partners, um, trust, you see an explicit call out of, of that, of, of trust there. And, and continuing to foster trust throughout all levels of the organization is, is a strategic imperative, um, as is investing in growing and retaining our leader, staff, and physicians. Um, you know, and an interesting one, this, the, the third strategic goal we have under care partners, I think, kind of dovetails with some of the things that we're, we were talking about and heard from um, Dr. Francis and his team of growing AHS's role in identifying, developing, and retaining talent from within its community and employee population. You know, I mean, that, that to me just said, hey, when we think about the requirement for bachelors and masters, but that's, that's an area we can really intersect that with the strategic plan. Um, and then finally here under Care Partners, a culture of accountability. And this is something we've heard a lot and we talked about this in, in, um, in many of our, our theme conversations we had with you all earlier on in the development of the plan but understanding that folks are both accountable and empowered. 
Um, so there's, there are decisions that maybe should not rise up the level of the executive team. We should empower our leaders to make those decisions. Hand in hand with that is we have to hold them accountable for the decisions that they make. Um, that, that's not, not a punitive level of accountability by any means. Um, it's, it's ensuring that we're making the right decisions for the right people for the right reasons. Um, jumping into our community pillar, um, we have three, three goals here, but these are all fairly broad goals that, that have a lot of actions that underlie them. Um, partnering with resources in our community to deliver a comprehensive continuum of care to our patients. This goes to everything from finding services within the community, um, defining closed loop systems, to understanding what is the need, what's the gap in the continuum of care within the community that AHS can help serve. Um, sharing goals, objectives, and performance internally and externally. Um, you know, this goes to making sure that as we partner with the community, we are open with them. We are sharing our objectives. We're sharing performance in a, in, in a, a, a bi-directional fashion. And this also comes to communicating with you, the board, uh, the public in the, in, within Alameda County, as well as the Board of Supervisors and ensuring that um, much like what we heard last week, there is robust discussion that is well supported by, by a very diverse team. Um, we're, there's a lot of that going on now, and I think it's really strategically important for that to continue to grow. Uh, and we, we intend to include some of that in the plan. Um, lastly, here we talk about a referral program that ensures patients receive needed care and, and resources. And we've looked at that both internally and externally. So things that remain within the system, as well as services and care that may need to be delivered or accessed outside of the system. Um, so more to come on that as we continue to work through what that looks like and, and how we're going to define that. Um, from a care perspective, um, we talk about improving access to care, and that can be everything from making it easier to get an appointment to how do we serve those who can't keep appointments. Again, kind of thinking back to Dr. Francis's presentation, you know, if, if folks are not able to have a predictable enough schedule to keep an appointment or have trouble physically getting somewhere or for any, any number of other reasons. Um, access has a pretty broad meaning. Um, establishing AHS as a high quality healing environment that advances health equity and addresses the social determinants of health. So I think we've heard from this, this group this evening what a priority um, that really is. And then lastly, um, supporting that high quality healing environment with technology and trusted data. Uh, and that goes, to, goes from everything from how are we approving technology to make sure that we're staying current? Um, how are we deploying technology? And then as we're making progress, what is the data that underlies our mission and how we're accomplishing it? How are we tracking ourselves against the plan? Uh, so with that, that is, that, that's our, that is our abbreviated um, run through and we can certainly revisit any of these slides for questions from the trustees uh, or follow up discussion as required or as desired, I should say. Thank you, Martin. If you'll, if you'll put us back to uh, screen mode, I mean, uh, uh, so all the, everyone can see each other. Trustee yes, Fox. Thank you, sir. Trustee Fox, sir. <clears throat> I haven't heard any discussion in the times that we've talked about the strategic plan about development of particular service lines. And I'm wondering, and we haven't gotten down to the level of actions, but do our actions include any detail on service lines that we need to, to enhance to better serve our patients with a comprehensive continuum of care? Uh, for instance, are, are there service lines where we need to 
add medical staff in the strategic plan or equipment and facilities and to upgrade or add specific services or programs, let's say within cardiology or within women's health or within behavioral health or uh, surgery or wherever. Um, Follow-up question on that is more on the business side, but are there any actions regarding improving payer mix, uh, attracting more Medicare patients or commercially insured patients? Uh, and, and just finally, one more thing, and then I'm, I'll be done. Uh, are there any, is there um, any actions related to what our long-term capital needs are to achieve the strategic plan? And the financial is going to include the, the capital needed for, for adding equipment and facilities, programs, and so forth when needed. Yeah, great questions. And I think they, they, uh, they really go back to a lot of the discussions that we've had with the ELT um, over the last couple of weeks. Um, to your to your point specifically around services and and what what are we contemplating adding, um, we do have some discussion around that at the action level, um, and even below the action level where we get into where where do we specifically see a need for services. Um, we've discussed with the ELT this week um, some some data around behavioral health and what those needs are. Um, we'll be prioritizing that as part of the the exercises at the ELT retreat. Um, similarly, we've had we had um, on the first, so I guess a week and change ago, uh, we discussed from more of a service line and community program perspective, um, where did we see need, where was it in the county, um, and I think the reason that you don't see definitive callouts for that in the plan as of today is when we look at the need, the need is great, and so as we start to think about what we can do and do well. Um, that's part of the prioritization exercise that we'll be working through with the executive leadership team to understand how we can best meet the needs um, in a way that is executable and supported within our, the resource constraints we have. Um, we have a, a team that's been modeling financial impacts, so down to sort of an action level, um, if you will, with uh, Kim Miranda and her team. That's uh, my colleague, Paul, he's, he's not with us this evening. Um, but as we go through the prioritization exercise with the ELT um, at the retreat next week, a big part of that prioritization exercise We'll be understanding what we can do with the resources that we have. Um, so there are some financial considerations in there for that as well. Uh, just if I could just respond to that. Um, yeah. uh, you know, I'm sensitive to this phrase with the resources we have. Uh, because, you know, our cash flow, even if it's positive, it goes back to the county. And, and, and we have uh, sometimes they give that money back to us and sometimes they hesitate quite a bit in giving some of that money back to us. Um, I'm, I'm kind of interested in what we, what we need to accomplish in order to serve our patients, you know, eventually at a level that all, all individuals in the East Bay in Alameda County, you know, even commercially insured individuals get, our patients should be able to expect comp a comparable standard of care. And if we don't have the re don't see the resources over the next three to five or seven years to do that, I think at least we should know what they are so we can go back to the county and say, look, you know, to achieve our mission and our, our long-term strategic plan of providing a, a, a kind of continuum of care that's comprehensive, what, what our patients deserve, here's what more resources we need from you. Yeah, and that's, and, and, sorry, go ahead. Uh, Trustee Fox, I think those are great comments, and I think they 
would fall under questions of sustainability. How, 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 how do we sustain this operationally and financially? I think those are great questions. Mr. McKittrick, sir. Thank you, Chairman Bouquet. Um, and Trustee Fox, I, I think your, your point is well taken there. Um, we, we are modeling out sort of the full universe of, of things that we've come up with. So it certainly is something where you could go back and say, hey, we really want to pursue this, this particular action that maybe didn't make it into the plan for whatever reason. Um, if you had funding, you could do that. So that certainly will be part of the documents that we do deliver. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things that, that you brought up that I think reminds me of a conversation I had earlier, earlier in the day today, uh, you know, when we think about our plan, um, strategic plans can be both transformational and foundational. And when we think about where AHS is today and, and sort of where we want to go to, we're very much laying the foundation for a foundational level of excellence that then makes AHS attractive to a broader pay, a broader set of patients. But, it, but sort of attracting those patients into the system as it stands today is, is not necessarily the explicit goal because what we don't want to do is displace the underserved. And so we wanna make sure that um, we're doing things and we say, gosh, should we improve access? Might that help us see more commercial patients or more Medicare patients? You know, the way that we've kind of approached that is, gosh, we, we shouldn't be doing that for that reason. We should be doing it because it's the right thing to do. It's, it's the right thing to do for patients who need that care. And, and, and that's, that's the way that we have approached a lot of this is, is laying that foundation of excellence that provides your, your patient population, um, the care that they deserve. Mm -hmm. Right, and, so, I, and I think that the idea of seeing more, more, more patients with higher level, better paying insurance is for the purpose of using some of that additional margin to be able to provide the services to our underserved population. Which is, which is a great question, Alan, of sustainability again, right? Do, do, we, do we float this service because that service can generate revenue to float another service? All great questions for us to consider. Um, uh, not uh, wanting to continue the dialogue, but understanding the hour. Um, Mr. McKittrick, you said that there are probably 30 action items that you've, you have in development, right? Yes, sir. I, I think uh, what, what I would forecast for the board retreat is pretty, pretty to have the board informed before that so they can do research. We're, I, I think we're looking for a time of discussion rather than presentation. So mm -hmm. if, I think that list of 30 items, even though understanding it's in evolution, could help us understand pillar, you know, all, mm -hmm. all three levels of that. I think that could be very helpful to the board to help get a rounded out picture because we're hoping that retreat will be a lot of dialogue. Is it possible to get us that even, and, and with a caveat understanding that we understand that this process is in evolution, you still have an ELT meeting on March 18th? Yeah, I think, I think we can certainly share that um, as we get closer to the materials for the 18th. Uh, I okay. think it may be most beneficial to share those with you as we get those tightened up. Um, okay. What we're kind of going through now is, is saying what can be consolidated, um, what, what sort of what makes sense, um, and we can... We can share that with you, I think, as we get a little bit further down the line um, from the standpoint of I think it would be helpful to align what you all see with what the ELT is discussing so that it's, it's, the, it's the same content and we have kind of a, a, a level of comparison. Exactly, Ms. McKittrick, that would, be, that would be great. So the material is going to the ELT, that would give us a before and after context, right? Here's what was mm -hmm. presented to the ELT, 
here's what happened at the ELT after. And then we go, when we go in, because it's a short timeline, sorry, we're, we're one week later, right? Yeah. Uh, just to get this done. So um, I think that would be helpful for this board to be, uh, to be informed along the way. So the wheels can be spinning, not in real time during a retreat. They would have already thought through a lot of these things. Yeah, and I think it, it would probably be helpful for us um, at some point, perhaps later on this week, we can get our heads together um, with Mr. Jackson um, and, and consider um, what materials the board may find helpful um, out of the universe that, that we have created throughout the, the course of the engagement. Got it. Trustees, any other questions for Mr. McKittrick, Ms. Grimmer? It's 1045 and 1145 for them. <laughs> None. To be Fox, thanks for calling that stuff out. Mr. McKittrick, uh, Ms. Grimmer, anything close? I think that I think we're we're good, and look forward to uh, some further conversation. Thank you for burning it midnight oil for us. Um, with that, let's close out item G four. Good night, guys. Um, uh, that's G four. Uh, trustees and audience, there are staff reports included. These are written H1 and H2. The CFO's report, it's a really, really nice report. Uh, once you kind of can navigate through the numbers, uh, it, it, uh, for, for the finance nerds, it gives you a little bit of warm and fuzzy. Um, so hopefully that, that sticks around. Item H2 is the supply chain update, which uh, our COO alluded to. With that, um, I think this closes the open session for us. Um, we're anticipating that closed session should not be too long, hopefully less than 30 uh, to get everyone home um, uh, as soon, soon as they can. Uh, we'll come back and announce if there are any action items, but if you're not here, that's okay. Council. Thank you, Chair Bukat. Uh, the board will now go into closed session to consider those items as stated on the agenda. Thank you. Good night, everyone. All right, council. The board met in closed session and took no reportable actions. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. This closes the Wednesday, March 9, 2022 Board of Trustees meeting. Everyone have a good night. Thank you.